The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading back to that old fairy tale village of Frankenstein where Baron Wolf von Frankenstein, along with his wife Elsa and son Peter, has returned to the old family castle to claim his inheritance and redeem his father's name. Unfortunately for him, the scars of the past run deep. The townspeople remember all too well the terror inflicted on them by his father's monstrous creation. Some say the creature still lives and may even be responsible for a string of recent murders. Can the son of Henry Frankenstein assuage their fears and bring honor back to his family name? Perhaps the grotesque-looking hermit with the broken neck living in the old Frankenstein laboratory can shed some light on the recent deaths. It's once again time to dust off those torches and pitchforks as we discuss the second sequel to James Whale's 1931 classic, Son of Frankenstein. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy! I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He did his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about 1939's Son of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff as the monster, Bela Lugosi as Igor, and Basil Rathbone as Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and possibly deranged lab assistant, Monster Mike Manzi. <laughs> How are you, Mike? Yes, most definitely deranged. Hi. Good to hear you, Dan, and uh, glad you can't smell those sulfur pits. If I may just drop some quick foreshadowing. I kind of wish they made like a sulfur pit Yankee candle just to create like a multi-sensory experience for this movie. It's too bad they don't make this. Yeah, they needed a couple couple more years till smell-o-vision, I guess. Well, it's been three years since Universal's last monster movie, and I really had to wonder why it took so long for Universal to crank out another one. Well, as it turns out, the culprit was just good old-fashioned censorship. Joseph Breen, the head of the Production Code Administration, I've mentioned him before, if you recall, he was imposing such harsh restrictions on horror films at the time that it simply became more trouble than it was worth to put one into production. So it wasn't just Universal, but Hollywood as a whole, that effectively began a self-imposed ban on horror films after all the censorship struggles with Dracula's Daughter, which we talked about last episode. Yes. As well as The Walking Dead starring Boris Karloff and Todd Browning's The Devil Doll. All of those were released in 1936. And it wasn't until 1938 that Universal decided to get back into the horror game and revive Frankenstein once again. But with, before we get into all that, Mike, let me ask you this. What are your initial thoughts on Son of Frankenstein? Had you seen it before, or was this your first time? I actually had seen it at least once before in its entirety, but I've also seen this a lot of times. It was just called Young Frankenstein. Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things sort of clicked into place watching Son of Frankenstein this time around, uh, not just seeing the sort of 
the most of the inspiration, I believe, for young Frankenstein's gags and, and sort of satire and stuff, as well as Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, but also, I feel like a lot of Frankenstein lore that is remembered by sort of the general public, um, some of it comes like from this entry as well. Like I was not sort of aware how widespread and influential Son of Frankenstein really was, you know, like it's kind of cool to know that even, I guess, not just then, but now that a part three of a Frankenstein series from the 30s, like still holds a lot of weight. So I thought that was really cool. And I, uh, I had a good time watching it this time. So Young Frankenstein draws from just about all of the universal Frankenstein films, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, it's really clear when you're watching Son of Frankenstein that it's really, it's mostly a remake of this film. Down to the point where uh, I, I can't watch it without seeing like Inspector Krogh and just uh, laughing at the, the arm movements, which is kind of a shame because Lionel Atwell is doing such an amazing job with his discipline as an actor, you know, keeping that arm, making it seem like it's a, it's a real prosthetic arm, you know, it's such an incredible performance. Yeah, a lot of Doctor Strange love in that performance as well. Yeah, it's almost tainted because I've seen Young Frankenstein so many times that like it's just it just rings funny to me now. Yeah, and Gene Wilder, not really, I mean, I know a lot of people who thought he was kind of dashing, but like he is kind of a dead ringer for Basil Rathbone here from certain scenes. You know, I'm not saying like he looks just like him, but like you kind of, you know, blink or look twice and you're like, "Okay, no, that's not Gene Wilder." Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he certainly has like the mustache and uh, the hair is different, but, but his performance I find is, is very similar to Basil Rathbone's in that he's very cool and uh, collected in the first half. And then as things start to spiral out of control, he starts to just lose his mind. He doesn't quite reach Gene Wilder heights in terms of scenery chewing and, and just crazed, you know, monologue delivery. But I do notice a similarity in their performance and how they change over the course of the film, their respective films. I mean, I love Son of Frankenstein. I think that as far as the sequels go, it comes about as close as you can to replicating just about everything that was good about the films that came before it. This doesn't quite feel like it, it, it exists in James Well's universe, but I think that a lot of the other elements, I mean, certainly you have a, an A-list cast here. You've got some, some real pros. Uh, you've got incredible art direction. You've got great cinematography. They're still swinging for the fence here with Frankenstein. So yeah, I, I think as far as the sequels go, Son of Frankenstein might be one of the, the, the best, at, le at least maybe the best third film of a franchise here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in the running now for one of my favorites. You know, it's kind of cool. Like you said, like we're back to a lot of the stuff from the original Frankenstein as far as like the look and the tone and the atmosphere. Like that's all back. And I feel we kind of missed out on that in the last couple of Universal films just in general. Like forget Frankenstein, but you know, like Dracula's Daughter and Werewolf of London. Like I wasn't necessarily complaining, but you can kind of notice like you watch those and you watch this movie and you're like, oh, okay. Like there's sort of like this weird minimalist expressionistic sort of surrealism going on in this movie movie again and it's like cool like it feels almost like it was made kind of before those or at least like back to those types of sensibilities at least right and we had talked about how dracula's daughter became like the most expensive film they had made up to this point and we were kind of wondering in some ways where some of that money went you know it doesn't exactly make it to the screen i i think with son of frankenstein you can see where that money went now there was a lot of overhead we'll get into it with the production issues but in terms of it looking and feeling like the best of what universal has put out up to this point i like i said i think the, the money's right there on the screen and it looks amazing 
Yeah, I almost wondered at times because it felt so so scarce and sparse at times that it felt like you were watching a stage play. I wondered if this was the kind of thing that like Todd Browning wanted to go for with that original Dracula when you hear stuff about, um, you know, he just kind of wanted like black draping sets or so, you know, like blacked right, out right. sets and just like as if you were watching a filmed play or something. I get sort of that vibe here from time to time and I like it. Now, before we get into the, the movie itself, I felt like it was important to give uh, a little bit of context given this like two-year ban on horror films. I was really, really interested. Once I started digging deep into what was going on at the time, like there's some really cool stuff going on here. So this is like a self-imposed moratorium on horror films by the studios themselves because of sort of backlash of the censorship board. That, I mean, that's certainly partially the case. Like I said, Joseph Breen was, was making things very difficult. A movie as expensive as Dracula's Daughter wasn't necessarily making its money back. So it was sort of like this collective, self-governing ban on horror films. Uh, and it took two years to climb out of that. But let's go back a little bit. In 1922, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America was formed as a trade association of member motion picture companies. Its first president was former Postmaster General Will H. Hayes. Some might know him from the Hayes Code, which is where we're getting. Among other responsibilities, the MPPDA was responsible for ensuring Hollywood remained financially stable, which in part meant ensuring films had a, quote, clean moral tone. Now, somewhat ironically, in the early days of the MPPDA, Hayes spoke out against public censorship and worked to raise support from the general public, who at the time largely opposed public censorship, but at the same time, they also decried the lack of morals in movies. Now in 1933, the Roman Catholic National Decency League was formed and began to rate movies independently. The NDL, along with several Protestant and women's groups at the time, announced plans to boycott films they deemed immoral. Now this put pressure on the MPPDA, who at that time, they were censoring films to just such a degree that things were okay and kind of respect but they weren't really taking it very seriously. There was a lot of wiggle room there. With the NDL now putting pressure on them, this certainly would have put a dent in profits, in industry profits, and it would have threatened uh, Will Hayes, his own power at the MPPDA. So he appointed Joseph Breen, who was, quote, a tough Irish Catholic, as head of the Production Code Administration, which was like a subdivision of that larger organization. Now, up until this point, studios were basically self-censoring. You know, they weren't totally reliant on the MPPDA to give out a final ruling. But now with the PCA, decisions became binding. No film could be shown in an American theater without the PCA stamp of approval. Anyone attempting to get around that faced a $25,000 fine. By July 1st, 1934, the new production code was enforced nationwide. So now, if a film studio wanted to get a movie into theaters, it had to go through the PCA. And now, of course, that would mean going through Joseph Breen. He was in charge of everything. Fun fact about him, in 1936, Liberty Magazine wrote that Breen's appointment gave him, quote, more influence in standardizing world thinking than Mussolini, Hitler, or Stalin. Which is a hell of a <laughs> thing to say about somebody. But by the mid-1950s, his stranglehold on the film industry was starting to diminish. Samuel Goldwyn of MGM publicly called for a revision of the production code. Howard Hughes, owner of RKO, released a film called The French Line, which included revealing images of actress Jane Russell in a swimsuit, despite the fact that Breen had refused to give it his approval. And when Breen objected to Otto Preminger's The Moon is Blue due to issues with dialogue, United Artists backed Preminger's decision to release the film anyway. Nice. 
that's what's going on in Hollywood at the time. Joseph Breen had a real, you know, like I said, a real stranglehold over uh, American films. Nothing could get past him if studios wanted to release these things nationwide. It just, it had to be done. That's crazy. He probably would just see Frankenstein on the cover of the script and throw it in the trash immediately, you know, like <laughs> just out of its reputation. Let's remember that since 1933, Joseph Breen was in charge, meaning everything that Universal put out since The Invisible Man had to go through him. Now, I think Universal really stretched what they could get away with with films like The Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter. But as we now know, Dracula's Daughter was like it was one of the final straws that broke that camel's back. You the know? nail in the coffin? The final nail? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was one of the last three nails in that coffin. So now, back to 1936. Following the release of Dracula's Daughter, all horror films were dropped from Universal's production schedules. And uh, within the following two years, they had considered a return to horror. Towards the end of that two-year hiatus, they were considering remaking The Old Dark House, as well as The Raven, which would have reteamed Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. But after a successful triple bill featuring Dracula, Frankenstein, and RKO's The Son of Kong, which played for five sold-out weeks at LA's Regina Theater on Wilshire Boulevard, Universal began to consider a Frankenstein sequel. So maybe that's where the son of originated for the title, that little extra billing with the Kong flick or something. <laughs> it certainly could have, that's for sure. I couldn't, I mean, I can't verify that, but you could be onto something there. And also, I mean, not to get too ahead, uh, again, I thought Bella Lugosi might be playing some sort of monkey man uh, <laughs> in this movie at first sight, you know? So, like, that just just hearing the name King Kong mentioned uh, alongside those other titles, like, you know, furthered my conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when Universal decided to release Dracula and Frankenstein together nationwide, that double bill brought in almost $500,000, and it became clear to them that audiences were still clamoring for more of the old monsters. Yeah, and now I know we're going to get the actors of Dracula and Frankenstein meeting each other, but it's wild that they didn't come back with Dracula meeting Frankenstein, you know, on screen together. Yeah, two years would have been a long time to not have monster films in the 1930s. You know, these things were cranked out all the time. We went one year without Marvel movies and look what happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But uh, I mean, these days we're a little more used to sequels taking two, three, four, five years sometimes. But two years would have been an eternity in the 30s. So it would have been great if they had decided in that moment, we're going to bring two of our characters together. But that's yet to come. Yeah, and they still get very close. It's It would be very, I mean, this is still a hell of a return, you know, if that's what they're sort of billing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that Karloff and Lugosi had appeared on screen together, but certainly for the first, you know, universal monster movie to come back to have two of their monsters starring in the same movie would have been really cool. You know, like Son of Frankenstein wasn't just Universal's first horror film at the end of the, uh, at the end of that hiatus. It was the first horror film to come back after the end of that. So people were really excited to see it. Now, in August 1938, Son of Frankenstein was announced. At the time, Universal was supposedly negotiating a two-picture deal with Boris Karloff, which did include this sequel to Frankenstein, and at the time, it was called After Frankenstein. By the end of October, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Basil Rathbone were pretty much locked in. Now, originally, Peter Lorre was to play Wolf von Frankenstein. Really? I mean, I feel like Bella would have been a great wolf and, like, give that guy the Igor role. <laughs> 
what we know Peter Lorre today, you know, he's way more at home with reject characters like the monster and Igor than he is with guys like Frankenstein, you know, like, yeah, yeah. And he was, he was in a lot of those other horror movies that we haven't covered yet as well. You know, like he was making the rounds with these guys too. So yes, the deal fell through with Peter Lorre because Universal couldn't get him out of a, a contract he had with 20th Century Fox. And according to the press release, Laurie said he had turned down the offer because he had stopped doing horror films to become Mr. Moto, a fictional Japanese secret agent originally created by the Saturday Evening Post after the death of Charlie Chan. He, quote, did not want to risk being, quote, subquote, on another meanie. Oh, cool. He was calling horror films meanies? Meanies, yeah. Oh, let's bring that back. Let's do shirts. (laughs) (laughs) Side note, he made eight total Mr. Moto films, so maybe it was an okay move on his part. Yeah, he got a franchise. You know, it's like same thing today, right? Like, he's like, I got got like this eight, nine picture deal with one character. I'm kind of like, breathe for a while. (laughs) We all still know who Peter Lorre is today, so, you know, you can't fault the guy. He made excellent career decisions yeah i mean even basil went on to do you know lots of sherlock movies and stuff so yes 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 and we're 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 getting to that but also worth noting about wolf von frankenstein the other actor considered for the role was claude rains i couldn't find any more information on that i don't know why he didn't play the role but uh, he was in talks to play that character as well would have been good he we know like he uh can lose his mind really well on screen even if you can't see him i would have loved to have seen his sort of expressions this time as he's sort of going mad <laughs> imagine him in like the first half of the movie with that beautiful speaking voice he had and like he would just would have been totally plausible as this character and then to see him like struggle to hold it together in that second half would have been great for my part i think i think basil rathbone is an incredible actor in this cast you know i think his his performance here is it was wonderful yeah i gotta be honest like i loved it like i think not just him but like the director and him like and not just him but everybody in this movie i feel like are bringing their a-game Like, everybody is sort of, like, I know one of my complaints maybe about some of the previous films is, like, certain actors aren't really, not that there's, like, a horror sort of style of acting, but I feel like maybe this is it, what I was kind of trying to get to, is, like, everybody here seems like they're on the same page, and they're all sort of doing something unique, but still, like, within the reality of the movie and everything. So, like, yeah, he's got a great shift. Like, he plays it really cool, and then when he loses it, it's very believable within his character and this actor's abilities. Definitely. And something to keep in mind about Basil Rathbone is that I don't think he was quite Basil Rathbone yet. Yeah, this is pre all that Sherlock stuff. Right. So the way I see him in this movie, in hindsight, I know who he is. I know he what, what a big deal he would become. But I kind of see him as playing this character who feels separate from the Frankenstein stuff in like, you know, the world of, of the village of Frankenstein. Like he and his family, they all seem like they're just sort of normal movie actors having to enter this weird fantasy land. And I think that's partially what I love about Basil Rathbone's performance is that he seems like a normal actor. And now he's being made to do a horror film. It's, it's almost like against his will, you know, like he's going to come in and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to act the way I would do any other movie. And then the movie itself forces him to submit to the material, you know, in a, in a weird way. Yeah. And I feel that too. It's funny because I get that for the character as well. Like, 
This time, right. Frankenstein is a true outsider in the sense that, like, uh, you know, from what we understand, he grew up in America, and now he's coming back home. So, like, there's, like, one of these sort of, and, and there's another nod to this later, but, like, there's a, this makes it feel like a Lovecraft kind of thing, you know, in that terms of outsider. Yes. About, like, a mm-hmm. guy visiting, like, this creepy town with a hidden secret. I even got that watching Jaws again this time. And, stuff. and like, <laughs> late, but, like, later, yeah. they're going to mention cosmic rays and stuff. I mean, I think Lovecraft had been dead for maybe two or three years at this point, but, you know, even Wolf Frankenstein bears a, you know, slight resemblance to Lovecraft himself and stuff. So, like, all this stuff is working really well for me. <laughs> you know, I was, like, yeah. really into what they were bringing here. Let's talk about Roland V. Lee, the director. He was new to me. I wasn't really very familiar with who he was. Now, he was 45 years old when he made Son of Frankenstein. He had been involved in the film industry since he was 19 years old. He had made one other film for Universal that was 1938's Service Deluxe, a great success which introduced audiences to Vincent Price at the time. Now, it wasn't a horror film, but in addition to a string of other successful silent films, he also directed Warner Oland, who we know from Werewolf of London, in 1929's The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu, and again in 1930's The Return of Fu Manchu. Also worth noting, he directed a couple of uh, Alexandre Dumas adaptations, including 1934's The Count of Monte Cristo and 1935's The Three Musketeers. This is probably why I don't really know who Roland Lee was. I haven't seen a lot of those like early 30s swashbuckling movies, and I really don't know a ton about the Fu Manchu films as well. So he's pretty much brand new to me at this point. He was pretty new to me, but I knew that this was a good director just watching this movie. Like, I could just feel the difference from, like, maybe not necessarily the last film, because that played really well, but definitely from Werewolf of London, uh, nothing against it or nothing. And, like, I, I did, out of all these movies, like, I have actually seen his little swashbuckling things. And, like, it's funny, because, like, I think, like, Captain Blood, which he didn't direct, but came up, and I think... I think Basil Rathbone might even be in is like another sort of classic pirate film and stuff. So like I've seen a couple of that stuff around the time and it's a lot of fun. So it's kind of cool to find out that he was a part of sort of that genre as well uh, to see that he could do that. He could do horror. I'd like to watch one of his dramas someday. It looks like he made a movie called The Wolf of Wall Street, which is really funny because I doubt it's anything like, you know, the Jordan Belfort story or anything. I would love to see Basil Rathbone try to crawl to his car on Quaaludes, though. Like, that's the thing I want to see. So we have screenwriter Willis Cooper, who was the creator of the radio show Lights Out, who submitted a draft of the screenplay in October 1938, and it was ultimately rejected. There was a lot of dissatisfaction between Roland Lee and Cooper over the script. Now, the original script involved Wolf von Frankenstein, his wife Elsa, and her young son Erwin arriving at Castle Frankenstein to claim Wolf's inheritance, but his father's will stipulated that the monster must remain undisturbed for 25 years following the Watchtower explosion before any inheritance could be claimed. There were several references to the Bride of Frankenstein, including the skeletal remains of Dr. Pretorius and the Bride. The script also involved the monster surviving the explosion, going on a murder spree across the countryside, and finally demanding a friend like him while threatening to kill Wolf's family. The villain in that script was Inspector Neumuller, who vowed vengeance against the monster for killing his family. And when Wolf failed to make a friend using the corpses provided by the monster, the monster kidnapped his son to carry out brain surgery on him. And in the climax of that, uh, Wolf arrived with Inspector Neumuller, who shoots the monster, who then falls into a pit. So clearly some things remained from this script. No Igor in that one. 
No, no Igor. And actually, it's very similar to like Bride of Frankenstein. It, it almost seems like they were trying to draw once more from the original novel, because if you remember in the in the original novel, the monster demands a mate. So they're still treading over the same ground. Like in the face of that, I'm glad that the script was revised into something entirely new. Uh, just one thing about this guy, Willis Cooper. He's responsible for the Phantom Creeps. I don't know if you're aware of that serial, but like that's a pretty popular one too. And Bella Lugosi is the star of that as well. So oh no way. Yeah, so I think there's like uh, you know just an extra cool connection between everything. But it's this story is so interesting. Like I really I can't wait to find out how they actually cracked it because there's something so bizarre going on here. Whoever I guess came up with the 30 years later hook. I don't know where that came from. But um, here's my main thing just so far. This guy's name is Wolf Frankenstein and not like Wolfgang. That blew my mind. And the fact that it was actually the town of Frankenstein. Like, those are two things I just have to sort of get off my chest before we go further. Since we're just talking still in, like, the development, that town of Frankenstein, I think that's new info, right? Like, we're finally getting a name here? Yes. So I, I was watching the movie with my girlfriend, and she had watched The Bride of Frankenstein with me. And, and she's watching, and, and she's is is the town called Frankenstein? And it was kind of new to me. I had never picked up on that either. I don't think they ever mentioned the name of the town before. I think that was part of creating this, like out-of-time, out-of-place fantasy city in their attempt to, to keep it sort of separate from our reality. They didn't give it a name. But now we have the name. And in my thinking about it, when she was asked me, like, is the town Frankenstein? I'm like, I don't think so. It's never been addressed as Frankenstein before. And then so I watched this a couple of times and I'm thinking to myself, back in the medieval days of Great Britain and Europe, you had barons, you had dukes, you had these lords that were sort of in charge of various territories across these lands, you know, across the countryside. And it, it made sense to me that the village that the Frankenstein family was in charge of might be called Frankenstein, because you, they, I think several times the, the people are referred to as the people of Frankenstein. That's how it made sense to me in my own head, but I don't think it was ever fully addressed before this. It's not that I don't like it, it's just like the way this town kind of feels about the family Frankenstein, you would just think they'd change the name of the town or like something to that manner, right? Like Or move. Or move. Yeah, <laughs> but why should they move? You could just rename the place. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is, you know, you sort of touched upon how the first movie doesn't have like a time and place, doesn't really name itself or anything. It's all sort of like takes place in this like in-between world sort of throwback fantasy land almost. And here, it's like 30 years later, or at least, right? Because, you know, Wolf Frankenstein Stein looks to be at least like in his late 20s to me, uh, even for, you know, that time where everyone always looked older. You know, the further you go back, the older young people looked. <laughs> it's the beauty of regulation, Mike. You know, we, we, we have cleaner air now. Yeah, I suppose. Better living in health and science and medicine. <laughs> That's right. But you could argue that this movie still takes place in 1939. You know, like you don't, you know, you could right. argue that the original movie, since it was never really dated, took place in 1909 or whatever, because it's, it's right. a little easier to believe than this being the 60s because they're not doing yes. any of that werewolf in london sort of quasi futuristic sort of stuff in the lab you know you'd think you'd have like television monitors at at the very least or something at these days or, or anything so very sort of clever solutions i felt in building upon what the original sort of left to play with 
Yes, and they sort of do usher the Frankenstein franchise into more modern society. I mean, the, the town itself still feels very isolated from everything else. You know, like I said, it very much feels like Wolf and his family are part of the real world who are taking a train into this nightmare reality. Even while they're, while they're on the train, we see those like backdrops of like the weird twisted trees. And, and it's like, constantly storming. It's like this perpetual storm. And it is like they're in some other... The reality. Let's see, where were we? So when Roland Lee expressed dissatisfaction with the script, Cooper did what he could to salvage most of those principal characters, of course. Neumuller was changed to Krogh, who lost an arm instead of a father, and he became significantly less antagonistic towards Wolf. I think I read somewhere in the original script he was like just strictly on a quest for revenge at, at any cost and was going to run through Wolf Frankenstein if need be. And had a very just negative attitude towards Frankensteins as opposed to Krogh, who wants to help you know, he, he understands that Wolf is not necessarily his father's son and, and wants to be there to, to protect him if he can. Yeah, I love the character Krogh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about coming up and stuff. But like, I think my favorite stuff is between him and little Peter von Frankenstein, you know, because. Oh, really? Well, because once you find out about Krogh's backstory, about how Frankenstein took his arm as a child mm -hmm. and you realize he is Peter still. He's still that right? little boy when Frankenstein's in his room right <laughs> like in the walls yes. and stuff so i think there's a really interest they built a really interesting kind of parallel between those characters and just the general theme i think of fathers and sons runs a lot stronger through this one even if it wasn't quite as much intended just by virtue of so many children <laughs> people in this movie really so many fathers and sons being uh, talked about Right. That's a good point. Other things that were changed, the child's name was changed to Peter, and his role was pushed further into the background. The original script was very dialogue heavy, with, with Willis Cooper being a, a radio man, had written a lot and a lot of dialogue. So with a lot of these revisions, Wolf's son, Peter, became a, a less prominent character in the film. It's so funny when you say like he was uh, he was writing for radio and stuff. It makes me wonder about the dialogue initially. If it was like, oh, I'm going to go into my room and get under my covers and pull the blanket up over my head, up to my nose, <laughs> dream of sheep as I hear them go, bah, bah, you know, like doing everything you can to create and paint a picture. And it's like, maybe we should get a guy who's written a movie before. <laughs> He did take away the monster's ability to speak. So that was another change for Karloff. I don't know if you noticed his dental appliance that he had taken out for the original Frankenstein was back out of his mouth. He had that sort of sunken cheek again. And honestly, I think it, I think it works for this film. I don't think this monster needed to speak very much. Yeah, I think that they get it across pretty clearly that he's suffered a lot of damage one way yeah. or the other, whether, whether it be, you know, you could chalk that up to, like, he, he can't speak anymore because of sort of, like, brain injury, if that's it, or, like, maybe he just got, like, his throat damaged or something. Like, I just went with it because the character was in a coma. So, like, all this stuff coming out of that, like, that's cool. He can't talk anymore. I, I get it. And, of course, Igor was added as a character, and uh, we can all thank Willis Cooper for that. Now, what's amazing about Igor is that without him, like, none of this makes, like, any sense, right? Like, he sort of feels, in a lot of ways, like, definitely the main antagonist. You know, sort of the through line to all of this, like, a bit of the twist when it comes down to the solution and, and the reveal and everything. Like, I was very surprised how kind of Igor-centric this movie turned out to be story-wise. Yes, uh, same. I remember the first time I saw it and I learned who Igor was. I don't think I realized 
beforehand that it was Bela Lugosi. And I also didn't realize that he was going to be such a huge, important piece in this story. Years later, we all now recognize that uh, Igor... I think, I mean, that's why the name resonates, right? I think we all realized Igor is like this great character, but anytime we see a Frankenstein movie or, or some some uh, rendering of Frankenstein, he's got to have like a weird assistant and he's always named Igor. He's never named Fritz. And it's because Lugosi made Igor such a prominent figure. Yeah, and I, no one remembers the guy from Bride of Frankenstein. It was like so bland. It was like Paul or something. <laughs> but it's funny we get a Fritz in this as well, as I can only assume was like their version of an Easter egg or something or a callback of some kind. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Now, Roland Lee wanted to make this film as lavish as his previous productions, and he used his good standing with Universal to increase the budget from $250,000 to $300,000. And he was able to secure a generous 27-day shooting schedule. He also considered shooting it in color. He ultimately settled on black and white when Karloff's makeup tested poorly on the color. Oh, yeah, that stuff would have just melted off his face. (laughs) Yeah. You think of those lights. Now, though the production officially began on October 17th, shooting was delayed until November 9th because of all of this sort of back and forth with the script and having to rewrite everything. With the cast already on salary, Universal increased the budget to half a million dollars and urged Lee to forge ahead script or no script. Nice. So with the cast now frequently receiving new pages just minutes before they were going to shoot these scenes, a shooting schedule and a realistic budget were pretty much impossible to nail down. So the the wrap date was pushed back from December 10th to December 17th. Now, of course, problems with this rushed production continued as the completion deadline came and went. Inclement weather interfered with uh, exterior shooting. Roland Lee came down with a cold that effectively sidelined him for a bit. But he was determined to have this film completed by Christmas Eve. By November 30th, it was reported that Universal had doubled its staff to cut and score the film in order to meet their scheduled release date. And what this meant for the studio, and more importantly the crew, is a non-stop day and night grind to the point where the crew were all notified that they could very possibly be working through New Year's Eve. So by Christmas Eve, the film was still nowhere near completion. And they even continued shooting past 6 p.m. that day rather than stopping by noon, which was the industry standard, you know, for Christmas Eve. So if everyone could get home to be with their families for the holiday. So now everyone's working long days, right? Rushing to get the film finished. And the principal cast had their engagements extended to December 29th, costing Universal even more money. But the film did finally wrap at 1.15 in the morning on January 5th, 1939, just two days before their first preview date, ending an insane 46 days shooting schedule. Now the final budget is estimated to be around $420,000, which is almost twice of the original estimate. And then now here's the important thing to note. This experience, along with Roland Lee's follow-up, Tower of London, which also starred Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff, had a similarly lengthy and costly production period, and it most definitely contributed to Nate Blumberg, who was Universal's management and financial department head, and production manager Cliff Work, deciding to scale down all of their future horror films and hire directors who could crank them out on schedule and within the budget. That's only too bad because, like, between this and Dracula's Daughter and the issues and problems, they're so worth it. Yes. <laughs> I just, just just had to chime in for a minute there after listening. Yeah, that must speak to this long-held belief that horror films are just not high art, you know? They're not respectable. They're there to make money, and that's about it. When we had Carl Lemley Jr. in charge of Universal, we at least had somebody who loved this stuff 
enough to make it as grand as everything else. And now with that, with the Lemley's gone, monsters are just there to make money for Universal, which is a little bit disappointing. That sort of carried on until I feel very recently in the studio system where for a long time, if you wanted to break in, they said, make a horror movie. They're fast, they're cheap, they're dirty, you know, they're a great way to uh, have something on your resume or put on your reel and things. So like there's maybe like from here on out, like that reputation starts building a little more, which is unfortunate because uh, not that they're not in there, you know, from time to time, but we could have like horror masterpieces in the way that that we have like people regard Gone with the Wind or something, right? Like I feel like we definitely missed out on some some films, some great films, just due to like these early sort of scheduling nightmares. But you know, this wasn't just going on with these movies. I'm sure this was going on with all kinds of movies across the board. It's just horror movies were vaguely new, a little harder to kind of like navigate and definitely um, sent more censorship issues and stuff like that. So I could understand like investors and studio heads being a little more nervous around these types of properties. Yeah, it becomes clear after Son of Frankenstein, I mean, with the exception of certain films like The Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, that a lot of these movies are made much more cheaply, and um, I don't think any of them really rise to the same heights as every anything we've seen already up to this point. Yeah, and by the 50s, you know, just in another decade, like, the Atomic Age taking over, like, yeah. every studio is going to sort of have the same ability to make the same quality and just keep topping each other with bigger and bigger like almost more sort of like blockbuster mentality sort of comes into play then but given what i know now about son of frankenstein it makes perfect sense to me why that is the case for universal's multiple uh, monster sequels and i have to assume that uh, until we get there you know we'll talk about it when we do but i have to assume at this point that the wolfman and the creature from the black lagoon were almost like flukes you know they weren't necessarily meant to be as good as as they became yeah or at least like they were launching new properties so they had to at least pour some money into the first one so that they could kind of like spit out the second and third. Right, right, right. Let's get into the cast real quick. We, of course, have Boris Karloff as the monster. Now, Son of Frankenstein would be Karloff's final film in that iconic makeup. In addition to the physical toll the role had on him, he decided that, quote, the character no longer had any potentialities. He would really only get back into that costume and makeup again for an episode of the 1960s TV series Route 66. <laughs> no way, we got to track that down and do like a patreon episode <laughs> we should look it up so he did an episode of route 66 as the frankenstein monster and then he also appeared at an all-star baseball game as the monster which i think there are there are photos of that on the internet i've seen those you know uh he got me thinking watching this time i was like the one guy i really wish we got in a frankenstein movie is andre the giant right mm, like there was mm -hmm. a guy who could act right princess bride all yep. his entire wrestling career right like that's all acting and stuff people said he was a, the best heel right like he could sell things so right. perfect so like it would have been amazing you know for him to have gotten a chance to do something with the role as well i guess it just wasn't the time and then uh we've got basil rathbone and before son of frankenstein i think we sort of touched on that like basil rathbone wasn't really the megastar that he would become but he had previously worked with roland lee on 1937's love from a stranger and he also starred in the adventures of robin hood in 1938 but as you mentioned before his maybe his most famous role is that of sherlock holmes which began in 1939 with the hound of the baskervilles and he, I, I did the math on this i didn't realize this over the course of his career he played 
played Sherlock Holmes no fewer than 15 times. Wow. Is that more than anyone? Yeah, that's got to be the most someone's played. Is that more than Hugh Jackman's played Wolverine? I guess he's in the lead right now, maybe. Yeah, uh, that might be the record as far as I know. Uh, I would love to hear any other suggestions. If you know of somebody who has played the same role in more than 15 movies, please write to us at themonstersthatmadeus at gmail.com. One episode we mentioned David Niven, right? And I felt like this guy felt a lot like that, right? Like he had that kind of energy. And I was trying to remember if that was in a Frankenstein episode as well or not, but he came to mind watching this now. I don't think, you know, he was approached or around at the time to do this, but like, seems like the sort of uh, the type that they might have cast. I mean, he was certainly like working and alive and doing stuff in London and things, but maybe we mentioned it in Bride of Frankenstein. I think that might have come up. Yes. We were talking about Michael Powell or something. <laughs> I don't know. David Niven almost played Percy Shelley in the in the opening sequence of The Bride of Frankenstein. Okay, so that's maybe why it kind of drifted into my mind. So the next, of course, the great Bela Lugosi, who we first saw as Dracula in 1931. Now, Bela Lugosi does some great character actor work here, right? But he unfortunately never really got the opportunity to do so again. I mean, those of us who have seen Ed Wood know kind of where Bela Lugosi's career is heading. But the great thing about Son of Frankenstein is that it did make him financially solvent again after Universal's two-year hiatus from horror films. Yeah, like, I love I love him in this movie because you watch him in, not that I don't love him in, in, in other stuff, but he's kind of doing the same, not the same thing, but like, here he's really transformed. I almost wonder if he had a mm -hmm, conversation mm -hmm. with Karloff and was like, what can we do? You know, like, let's do stuff. Like, let's, you know, like, I want to, I want this to sort of be unrecognizable, maybe, or, you know, because that's how it feels. Like, he's really in, he really dug into this role, and it does feel beyond what I was expecting to come out of him, you know? Like, I was almost expecting him to just be Dracula with a beard or something like that, but it's a whole character going on here. He's certainly playing for the cheap seats with this role, and I think it had to do with the fact, or we're getting to it, like, he really didn't have a whole lot else going on in his life. According to Lugosi, the studio heads at the time, they, they more or less dismissed him as a boogeyman and told him, quote, we have nothing for you today, tomorrow, or the next day. Um, his only real work during that two-year hiatus was an eight-week stint in a stage production of a French play called Toverich, and the salary of that play pretty much had to be stretched out over the 104 weeks that he wasn't making films with Universal. Oh, and, and, and while Dracula and Frankenstein were playing at the Regina Theater with Son of Kong, Lugosi's career, you know, was sort of revived. He was asked by a man named Eric Human to appear at those triple bills. And Lugosi said, quote, I owe it all to that little man at the Regina Theater. I was dead and he brought me back to life. And without this one moment, he may not have played Igor because suddenly he was back in the public consciousness, you know, with Dracula and Frankenstein back, you know, at, in theaters again. Wow. So he showed up to those as like a public appearance kind of thing. That's awesome. According to Roland Lee, the crew let Lugosi, quote, work on the characterization. The interpretation he gave us was imaginative and totally unexpected. When we finished shooting, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that he stole the show. Karloff's monster was weak by comparison. I mean, he does control the monster in the movie. It's definitely set apart from what was going on with Fritz in the first movie, right? Like that feels like a whole different character. It's not like he's trying to do that either. That was a smart decision as well. That was a good choice to sort of just make it completely his own. 
Igor would would eat Fritz alive. The power dynamic is entirely different. I mean, I mean, what do you have left to fear when you're already dead? You know, and that's kind of how he plays it, which is incredible. There's some great scenes later where they're like, we can't hang him again. We already hung him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine like surviving a firing squad and being set free? <laughs> right. I mean, it's double jeopardy, baby. You can't try somebody for the same crime twice. So moving on, we got Lionel Atwill who appears in his first Frankenstein film here as Inspector Krogh. Now, by this time, audiences would have been familiar with him from his hammy over-the-top performances in 1932's Dr. X and in 1933's The Vampire Bat and Mystery of the Wax Museum. And what's cool about Lionel Atwill is that he appears in every Frankenstein sequel from here on out. Oh, is he Krogh? No, 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 no. No, he doesn't play Krogh. Okay. Krogh, by the way, is a great Klingon name. I don't know if they ever yes, referenced <laughs> it on Star Trek, but they missed out if they didn't. Uh, and this guy sort of silently steals the show. Very mysterious character, the inspector. I'm not quite sure what to make of him. Is he like good is he bad you know at first he seems kind of like a bad guy but then you know when you listen to him like he's a good guy but he still looks kind of like a villain and he's got the arm going on and the great backstory and i just thought lionel atwill just just destroyed this role just so good yes so like lionel atwill is kind of um this movie's Van Helsing, or oh, yeah. you know, the uh, maybe not the Van Helsing, but he is sort of the um, the Edward Van Sloan of this movie. He is that like if Edward Van Sloan had done this movie, that's probably who he would have played because Krogh is the guy who has experience with the thing that you know is at the center of this film. He had his own arm ripped off by the monster, so he's he's faced it one on one, and he's there uh, warning Frankenstein like. You should really be concerned about, you know, the people out in the village. You should maybe be concerned with the fact that your dad tried to build this abomination. There are reasons why you just need to maybe slow your roll a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's trying to be a guide, like a helping hand sort of thing. And, you know, Wolf is just sort of too naive to begin with to understand, like, cultural differences. Like, he can just right. not read the room when they arrive, like, you know, at the train station. He's like, oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And everyone just like... Like walks away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Krog is there to sort of try and mediate a lot between the angry mob right outside his door and the man himself, like reason with him and try and like figure out what is really going on with these murders. We've got Josephine Hutchinson as Elsa Frankenstein. She was an up-and-coming stage and screen actress who had just signed a two-picture deal with Universal, the first film being 1938's The Crime of Dr. Hallett, featuring Ralph Bellamy. Before that, she had been signed by MGM to star in a few films that they had originally acquired for actress Helen Hayes, and they were going to make her a big star. But instead of starring alongside Clark Gable, her only credit for that studio was a forgotten B-movie called The Women Men Marry. So she jumped for Universal. I wish she was a little more explored in this film. There's a lot going on even in, you know, we didn't even mention it yet, but this this movie's uh, an hour and 40 minutes, like well beyond mm -hmm. the average runtime of these films so far. Yes. There's a lot of ground to cover and a lot of a lot of development and stuff, but it's unfortunate that like that character sort of isn't as deep as necessary. Right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I think she plays one note, which is worried and concerned the whole movie it feels like she just wants to get out of there but who could blame her who could blame her right wolf shows up and he's like man it feels like home and she's like this is the worst <laughs> <laughs>
We've also got Donnie Dunnigan as Peter Von Frankenstein, the child actor in this movie. He had worked with Roland Lee previously on RKO's Mother Carrie's Chickens. As an adult, he was quoted as calling his performance corny and said, quote, They had this little kid in there with this loud voice. They kept saying, speak up, because I didn't speak that loud then. And as you speak up, your accent is always accentuated. So here's this little curly-headed jerk running around there with this very deep Memphis, Texas accent. They had the courage to do that, end quote. He eventually went on to work with Lee, Boris Karloff, and Basil Rathbone again that year on Tower of London. I like him. Maybe it's less to performance and more the idea of the character like this precocious fearless kid running around in a medieval castle having the time of his life and there's like a giant that lives in his walls and stuff you know like just seems like he's having the time of his life in this movie you know and i i feel like that whole like no fear thing might be some kind of message that they're trying to get through that maybe didn't resonate deep enough or whatever but like i don't know i thought it was interesting and definitely you know like with his voice and is they're trying to be Americans right like that's the idea right. and like that kid at that time like definitely from like little rascals or something like our gang like that's what I was thinking and you know there's again not a lot of sort of obvious humor you know like we get sometimes like I, I feel like it's less telegraphed in this and I feel like a lot of it comes from this little boy and it's just by virtue of having that child's perspective in contrast to all these adults running around dealing with serious things he sees everything as sort of a playtime and everyone else is running around because it's life or death and so i kind of got a kick out of his appearance in this i think i'm going to disagree with you on the performance okay Uh (laughs) (laughs) i mean he's a little boy but okay (laughs) i think the character is decently written on the page the performance like by this kid they could have found more precocious kids to play this role i just I, i don't it doesn't feel like he is engaged with anything that's really going on around him so much as just saying the lines that are on the page. I mean, I don't want to be too too harsh a critic on a child, but at the same time, you know, I think there could have been better child actors for this particular role. Okay, I, that, that's val- That's definitely fair. You know, like, I think part of it to me is we haven't had children in these movies before, so it's sort of jarring. You know, we were talking Friday the 13th recently, you and I, and we were mentioning part four, the intro of Corey Feldman in that, like, having this kid around is, like, a whole new element into the Jason running around killing teenagers. It's like, now a little boy's in danger. And so I was sort of getting some of those vibes off of him, and maybe that was just blinding me from his performance a little bit. I'll give you that. <laughs> like, I get what the character is there to, like, his function within the greater script, and so I can go along with it, but, you know, I had to have subtitles on to understand what he was saying sometimes, and I, I just, I didn't feel like the performance was as good as it could have been. Now, if listeners want to hear that conversation with Mike and I and our friend Brian on Friday the 13th, part four, go check out the podcast High School Slumber Party. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, one more casting note I wanted to, to mention because he is one of our favorite universal monster actors. Dwight Fry had a small role as a disgruntled villager, but it was unfortunately left on the cutting room floor. 
would his like one scene in this movie make the difference? Probably not, but it would have been fun for you and I to see Dwight Fry on the screen. We're not done with Dwight Fry yet. He will appear again, but um, this is just one less Frankenstein movie for him to appear in, which is uh, which is sad for me. And lastly, not cast related, but I thought a few more crew credits that we should mention before we really get into the movie, I'm sure, because their, their work is going to come up frequently, I believe. But we can thank uh, art director Jack Otterson, Associate Art Director Richard H. Rydell and Cinematographer George Robinson for making this movie so much more beautiful to look at than it really ever needed to be. This movie is gorgeous. Like, I did something that I hadn't done in a, in a couple movies, is I took screenshots and sent them to you and was like, this movie's beautiful. And, like, you, you know, sort of touched on that earlier in the podcast, where it's like, they've definitely brought that back into the fold. That's something that had been missing from the last sort of three or four movies in full effect, to the degree that they sort of came out of the box with in Dracula and Frankenstein originally, where it's like, now we're back. That is what is going on here again. Like, the village of Frankenstein exists in this sort of crazy painting you know like we are through the looking glass in this movie yeah and I, and I think it's it's their work in addition to the the very strong cast that really elevate this movie I mean I think that the script is is really good and it does really bring out the father-son themes in ways that we haven't seen but you know we've got really strong principal actors in this but if it didn't look good I think it might have just felt like another like you know B movie or, or like C level uh, uh, Universal monster film, but it just looks so good. It looks like you could watch this right, like you could watch Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein like in a marathon if you wanted to do a triple feature. And there's there's some little continuity issues that that get in the way, but otherwise, I think stylistically they all kind of fit together, like they all belong in the same family. Totally, man, and I think that's that's the Universal family. Like I think that's the Universal look, to be honest, because like. You know, again, we sort of got away from that in the last few movies, and to be honest, they weren't as successful, right? Like, maybe the audience realized something was a little off because they didn't look the same or, or something like that, right? Like, they should have not kind of worried so much about the plot, per se, as much as, like, the design, okay? Like, horror movies in general also, I feel like you get a really unique opportunity to, like, you know, remind someone you're watching a movie, right? Like, you can't really yeah. do that with a drama so much, maybe a comedy, but with a horror film, you could really pull a lot of tricks, you know, visually and cinematically and, like, you know, get someone to really submerge themselves, like, in that mood and everything. And so, like, I, they're definitely, like, back on that. Yes, Agreed. Now, let's get into the movie itself. Cool. So the movie begins back in that same town, which we now know as is the village of Frankenstein. I don't know if you saw the same thing, but, you know, it opens, it fades into a, a shot of like this dilapidated castle of Frankenstein. It's a rainy night. Everything's very dark. I think like everything's just sort of hanging on by a thread, right? And it reminded me of the beginning of Citizen Kane when we see Xanadu all abandoned and falling apart. I'm not going to say that Son of Frankenstein is on par with, with Citizen Kane, but I love the symmetry there with how these movies begin with this old, broken down house that was once something very beautiful and, and grand. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think this is... Well, even before we get to that, new universe. Universal logo, right? Oh, we do have a new Universal logo. <laughs> Sorry to back 
pedal a bit. No, but, that's right. Uh, new Universal logo, the new fanfare reminded me of Superman for some reason. Yes. Uh, no more little plane flying around the Earth or anything. Uh, but yeah, you know, once we get into this movie, they are wasting no time in establishing their mood, setting their tone, telling you where we are, like orienting you, saying like, yeah, this is the same timeline or whatever. I don't even think that they might have been worried about any of that kind of stuff necessarily but yeah it's very cool opening here i get much more of like a sense of place like we were saying we know the town is frankenstein they seem to be speaking german the rain right out of the gate really you know set me off so good opening and we get igor in the first couple seconds as well we don't know who he is yet but we see that somebody, some sort of vagrant is living within the walls of what was once Castle Frankenstein. But then we get to this meeting with the city council almost. You know, the burgomaster's there. The, I guess the mayor is there. Yeah, we'll get this setting a couple times. They come back to this. Yes, yeah. this, this becomes a popular setting. What we get from this scene is like they're preparing for the arrival of the new Frankenstein. And what we learn in this scene is that like everything that his father did in the previous two movies, it has ruined this town beyond measure, even to the point where like tourists don't even want to come through. Because they won't change the name of the town. I, that's the last time. <laughs> that's the last time I'll mention it. But yeah, like this is an interesting scene to start with because it's like a good exposition scene, right? Like it's really going to set up like a lot in a little amount of time. They're like, sort of Frankenstein's coming. This is his inheritance. We have to deliver this package to him, and like let's just try and get him out of here as quick as possible. So like just in case he's like his dad, we don't want any of that shit going on again. So you know, everybody's very on edge at the very in the very first scene of the movie good way to start a horror film i think it does make some sort of sense i do feel some amount of empathy for these people because the town went to shit and it all was all because of the actions of this one guy and now we're gonna invite you know his offspring over like who who's to say he's not gonna make things worse you know or perpetuate this misfortune you know like i get their perspective i don't think it's completely unempathetic yeah it seems like they're trying to like close the book on this right they're like if we could just get through this last bit we'll be good forever but the issue is like before he even arrives there's been some murders in the countryside and people having like heart attacks spontaneously and so they're already like again they're on edge because even just the the mention of frankenstein sort of tends to be a bad omen and bad things and bad luck is sort of abound because of it yeah, and it's very much like there's nothing we can do to stop him. We're just not going to be his friend and we'll make it as miserable as we can for him until he leaves. Yeah, they're going to shun him. They're going to try and shun him. Hopefully he'll take the hint and get the hell out. <laughs> but we do also learn in that scene, they reference the old hermit Igor is the only thing living inside that castle now. Now, we don't know who Igor is yet, but uh, we, at least we have a name to put with the face we saw a couple seconds ago. I also got, like, just real quick to, um, just because, like, anytime sort of a modern reference will pop up i'll kind of try and point it out as i used to with stunts but stunts have gotten few and far between until the end of this movie where we get a nice sort of belly flop or whatever you want to call it we get one of the best stunts at the end of this but like the whole concept of like wolf going back to his hometown and like exploring his heritage i was getting and this bear with me but i was getting almost like a texas chainsaw massacre vibe from the original because in the original almost yeah it's like those kids are like yeah we're going back to like where you know our family 
grew up, but we never, you know, the old farm or whatever. And they end up going there and it's like a horror show, you know? And yes. it's sort of like the same sort of idea here where he's like, oh, it's going to be great. Like, this is where I'm from. Like, these are my people. And he's going to get there and it's just like a nightmare fest. <laughs> that is, okay, that is an excellent comparison. Never in my life that I expect to compare Son of Frankenstein to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> but when you break it down like that, it is a pretty apt comparison. Because you're dealing, I mean, we're dealing with lineage a lot in this particular film, so, like, it, it sticks a little better here, whereas there, it's just sort of the conceit of, like, to get them off the beaten path kind of thing. But it's just something that keeps sort of, you know, it's a horror motif, I guess. As you mentioned, he uh, is very excited to get back to his ancestral home and be part of this new town. And as you said, he is not greeted uh, with a warm welcome. He arrives and like the entire town seemingly shows up to witness his arrival, but not to make him, you know, feel at home. They certainly are not happy to see him. I think they're mostly there just to intimidate him with their stone cold silence. Oh, absolutely. Like it's, they're in complete contempt of this guy, you know, yes. <laughs> like he doesn't know he's done anything wrong per se, right? Because he's heard whispers of his father, I guess. Like, I mean, we're not sure when Frankenstein one died exactly right so we don't know how yeah. long he raised this kid and what he knows per se about his own dad uh, necessarily but not a warm welcome there's also that moment on the train too early on where it's sort of like this very meta line where he's like we're going back to where that creature was that people even call by my name and then they're like Frankenstein <laughs> and I was like holy crap they like referenced the misnomer of the monster yeah, it, it, so I, I had to rewind that and play it again because I was like, wait a minute, did they just did they just do that again? It very much reminded me of that moment in Dracula, which was repeated in Dracula's Daughter. And there was also a similar moment, if memory serves, in The Mummy, where a sentence is started and then finished by somebody else in a completely different context. But when you hear all of the words strung together, it makes like this one complete thought. And I thought, yeah, this they acknowledge the fact that everyone is calling the monster Frankenstein. That was such a such a brilliant moment. See, that's the stuff that I really like, you know, because until I started watching these movies with a critical eye, I didn't like I didn't necessarily notice that stuff. And as I was like taking my notes and watching this movie the other night, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I wrote it down. That is like the least expected stuff that I was, you know, expecting. Like, I mean, you know, just the idea <laughs> of that type of sort of humor or writing and sophistication at the time. I don't know why I didn't think it would not be there you know so many of the you know amazing novels and movies were written at least 100 years ago right like hundreds of years ago so like it makes sense that this sense of humor existed in america in the 30s or the late 30s early 40s and such it's just so commonplace these days and felt so modern to me that I was like, oh my God, like even back then people were walking the streets in the thirties, calling the creature Frankenstein and having to be corrected. And to be so much to the point that we put it in the movie <laughs> to, to remind everybody. <laughs> yeah. And it somehow feels less on the nose than it would today. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing that shocked me was how natural it came out. Uh, you know, not only was I not expecting it, but it like fit so perfectly into the context. 
Yeah, like if you're not if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it, which I like because these movies I think warrant that sort of rewatching for little details like that. Because the more the more you watch them, you start to notice that stuff, you know. But oh, uh, one thing before we move on, when Wolf arrives in the town of Frankenstein, part of that scene where he's just sort of like trying to make friends or at least put people at ease and failing horribly, the burgomaster, I believe, or the uh, I'm sorry, maybe it was the, the mayor of the town. He gives Frankenstein this box of his father's old notes. And that's important because I, I think up until this point, I don't get the sense that Wolf has any inclination to continue his father's work, right? He's just here to see the house that belongs to his family. Maybe he's uprooting his whole family's lives to, to live here. Yes, he is a doctor, but I haven't gotten the sense that, like, that's the thing that he's really setting out to do with his profession, you know? I think it's once he gets his father's notes and all of the work in that box and, and starts to go through it, realizes that, like, maybe he could, in some way, change public perception of his father's name by perfecting the work he had started, you know? Like, so this is a very important moment for him. Yeah, I think that's a really smart sort of moment for his, like, motivation, okay? Because, like, this guy is a little more complex than he comes across. Like, when he arrives at the place, he's like, I swear I'm not my father, you know? Like, I'm gonna be cool, everyone, and, like, no one believes him. And he's like, he just wants, like you said, to sort of rebrand the name and, like, stop all the rumors and things like that. Uh, so it is kind of a interesting, maybe not a twist, but maybe, a, a like, a part of his personality that you could start to see maybe it's uh, passed on from his from his father or you know maybe it's hereditary maybe it's not or maybe it's his just like general ambition yeah he is kind of seduced by his father's notes by the concept of the creature by the idea of maybe you know making his father proud somehow even though he's not around but like reforming and restoring the family name and stuff so it's a pretty cool motivation and i buy his actions later because he's going to sort of be warring with igor about their methods mm -hmm. of doing mm -hmm. things you know so like he's got a concept and he's sort of still got his like moral ground and stuff so that's going to be interesting to see if he could hold on to that throughout the movie so yeah now wolf arrives at the old family homestead and it is a striking set this whole castle set there's not a single scene that takes place within it that is not absolutely gorgeous it looks very german expressionist even more so than anything we've seen up to this point in the movie it's like he's walking into another world like i've said i've sort of referenced that idea several times but this is where it feels most like on the head we meet some of the other members of the house including benson who is like his butler who seems to be like a family butler he brought Benson with him to the town of Frankenstein, but there is another woman, the, the nanny, you know, so to speak, Amelia, who is uh, also part of the family, who I guess they've gone ahead and, and met them there, but they're already waiting for them. I thought it was funny that the butler's name was Benson, because growing up there was a show called Benson about a butler. <laughs> it was like a spinoff from a show called Soap, but like, I was like, oh my gosh, and is that like a butler name? Is that a, a thing, Benson? Benson's going to like have a very different role in this than I expected, which is very cool. But like, okay, this set is insane. It's like that wacky, creaky staircase. That's it. That's like the only thing like pretty much like in the room, and it's amazing. 
amazing. It's just like shadows upon shadows everywhere. And they're just going about their business like naturally, which that I love too is like no one's ever going to comment on the decor or the look. <laughs> he walks into the place and he goes, ah, oh, it's so medieval. I love it. And she's kind of like, it gives me the creeps. And that's it. And then like, we're going to see room after room, like the dining room, the drawing room, like they all have these very unique stylized looks to them that are very cool and very minimal and very expressionistic and stuff. And like, very wild. Lots of diagonal lines, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, very Caligari. Like, they really bring it all the way back. Yeah, I, I noticed a Caligari influence outside of that as well. I mean, the dark diagonal shadows, certainly, but some of the buildings that we see prior to this sequence, like in the town, they had these, like, very unnatural shapes to them, you know, like very large, very curved roofs and very crooked walls like it felt most Caligari to me I think more than anything else I've seen in a Frankenstein movie which I thought was really cool you know I, I love that they really leaned into the expressionist style here but yeah so this is where Wolf finally has an opportunity to go through his father's work I think it's pretty interesting that, that there's a note from his dad sort of introducing all of it. Kind of lays it out that like, this is what I was working on. You don't have to follow in my footsteps, but if you feel compelled, you know, like here it all is. Well, he really lays it on thick. He's like, if you want to know the secrets of my knowledge and like yeah, the yeah. key to humanity, you know, like <laughs> yep. how can you not? Yeah, I mean, like I perhaps underplayed it there, but yeah, he's really laying it all out for Wolf to make this decision to at least humor this work. That's a good way of putting it, I think, yeah. Because, like, at this point, he would have to start from scratch, right? That'd be a, a huge, monumental undertaking to try and recreate this work from nothing. But as we'll find out, like, half the work is kind of done for him. And so he, that's just sort of like the little the little push he needs to descend into, into chaos. When we get there, that's also, like, the big catalyst it's like the second piece of the puzzle you know it's like the notes and then seeing that like most of the work is already done <laughs> it's like oh okay i could i could finish this totally one thing i want to touch on before we move on from the castle frankenstein is when elsa is moving into the bedroom and she notices this unusual layout where the beds are oriented sort of like head to head not quite. They're a little like diagonal, but I think that's more for staging. You know, I think if they were to arrange everything literally, I don't think it would it would look as nice. So the beds are sort of arranged sort of head to head. And when Elsa asks, why is it arranged like this? And there's an old saying, if the house is filled with dread, place the beds at head to head. And uh, Elsa, who's already not crazy about being here, looks even less so after hearing that. And then we have a great moment where all of Wolf Frankenstein's like stuff is being carted through the city on horseback in like that carriage. And the townspeople are so pissed that they're like picking up shit off of the ground and flinging at it. Yeah, they're throwing like tomatoes and stuff and like screaming at the driver and everything. It's crazy. So you, you saw tomatoes and I'm sure it was probably some kind of compost, but like my first thought was that they were they were picking like horse shit off the streets. They they were that angry. Now that you say that, to sort of maybe get that past the censors, perhaps that's the reason they have the little scene of um, little Peter praying at night. Oh, could be. I wondered if that was like on a on two levels. If one, if they're like, hey, let's put this in just like to please the, the ratings guy. But like also let's sort of like 
put it in as sort of like, not necessarily a joke, but a wink and a nod to sort of how, not anti-religion, but I guess how sacrilegious maybe Frankenstein movies have been or could have been perceived in the past. It's like, how funny would it be if there's like a little boy saying a prayer to God in a Frankenstein movie or, or something? I have no doubt that was put in there for that reason. I, I feel like any any opportunity to throw in some acknowledgement of God, just so that uh, that he was present, you know, and it wasn't like the entire movie was going to ignore God entirely, because so much of the ideas of these films sort of laugh in the face of Christianity, you know? You have this whole idea of recreating man in your own image, and, you know, playing God and so on. So there's no doubt in my mind that that scene was put in there for that reason. And then the following scene, we meet Inspector Krogh. And as we discussed, he's one of the best characters in this whole movie. Um, and he shows up, and let's continuously compare this to young Frankenstein, but we see him approach the door and there are these giant door knockers. I think I said out loud, what knockers? <laughs> you know, but they're, they're enormous. And, and I love that the movie does at one point acknowledge how comically enormous they are because uh, Elsa asks like, can we please put in a doorbell? Because these door knockers are scaring me out of my skin every time somebody's at the door. But then we've, you know, we've got Krog, who, again, I, I just, I, I can't help laugh. Lionel Atwell was playing the scene so well with, the, with his arm. And he's there to explain to Wolf that he is not the most welcome person in this town. Like, Krogh's not there to to get him, make him leave or be his enemy, but, you know, he feels it's his duty to at least say, hey, this town suffered a lot because of your family, and they don't really want you here, so just be careful. And I'll be here if you need my help. And of course, well, multiple times. I cannot figure out why. He's so proud. He's like, I'm not gonna need your help. Yeah, but if you do, no, I, I promise I'm not gonna need you. Yeah, but if you do, just ring the bell. You know, like, the wildest thing is that, like, I still feel like Krogh is the hero. Like, he has every right to hate Frankenstein's family the most. It took his arm. The other people that should hate Frankenstein are the parents of the little girl who was thrown in the lake, but the monster killed them in the beginning of the second movie. You know, this guy should have, like, a vendetta against the family. Instead, he's, like, his only source of sort of protection. He's, like, the only guy on his side in the entire village, which is crazy um and i love that about about this dude and also just about you know we got to mention his appearance a little more with not you know the arm and and the monocle and like this guy is you know he's disabled okay like he he's suffering trauma like he he looks nefarious Yes, at times, like, I thought he would, you know, to mention Dr. Strangelove earlier, because, like, this guy has a very sort of Nazi-esque kind of presence to him with, like, his, his you know, shiny boots and, and, like, at times the way that arm is just so super stiff and things, it looks like a salute. Yeah. But it's quite the opposite. Like, he is very much the epitome of, like, looks can be deceiving, do not judge a book by his cover. This man looks this way pretty much because of his encounter with the creature, okay? And, like, this is the best he can do, even. He can't joined the military so he decided to protect the village he grew up in like i just admire this guy on, on a certain level as a character already oh he's wonderful and when when i look at you know what his character was supposed to be originally like this man hellbent on revenge i prefer this version if only because instead of zigging he zags right, right? he's the guy who has every reason to be that vindictive character but chooses to be the protector of the town and chooses to empathize with frankenstein instead of treat him like his mortal enemy so yeah i love that 
he looks every bit the villain. I mean, I assume in 1939 he would have appeared like a villain to audiences. I mean, the Nazis were already in power. He looks like almost like a Rotwang from Metropolis, who is like one of the first sci-fi screen villains, pretty much, with his robotic arm. Yeah, there's this great moment. I mean, we've already sort of touched on it, but like Wolf Frankenstein is so proud of, you know, just of himself. And he's like, these people are over-exaggerating. There's no way that these stories could quite possibly be true to the degree that they're saying that they are. Like, who would believe such nonsense? And Krogh's like, well... Yeah, you're... <laughs> he's like, you really aren't from around here, are you? This thing kind of ripped my arm off when I was a kid, so maybe, maybe chill out. Yeah, not only that, like, at the moment, there's a murdering ghost somewhere around, you know? Like, we'll figure it out soon enough, but even before Frankenstein gets back home, Igor has been using the monster for his revenge when we find out what that is. I was like, how is this going to make any sense? And then I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Everybody believes in ghosts and superstitious and, and because they've seen it because it's not fake. They know it's real. Yeah, and then we get a quick scene where we establish a little bit more about Igor. Before the end of the evening, little Peter is asleep in his bed, and we discover that Igor has certain trap doors in this building and has the ability to spy on Peter in his bedroom while he sleeps. So that will come into play. Yeah, that was awesome that Igor is like a hider in the house. Like, he's behind the walls and, you know, like that movie The, the Boy or whatever. Like, he's uh, <laughs> hanging out inside the walls. And before that, we get that great shot of him, like, peeking through the window at Wolf, like, in the pouring rain. You know, he's just kind of in the background throughout these scenes. And then the following day, the Frankensteins are at breakfast. Peter is going to go hunting for elephants and tigers with his big toy rifle. And Frankenstein and Elsa are at breakfast, and it's a charming family scene, I think. The real star of this scene is the set and the set design and, like, all that kind of thing, I think. Like, that's what really kept my attention during this. It's just sort of the show, like, oh, they're a very loving, functioning family at this point. Look at everything they're about to lose. It's kind of like what, what this sequence is setting up. <laughs> yeah, right. Immediately after breakfast, Wolf decides first thing he's going to do that day is check out his father's laboratory, which has somehow made its way to, like, within yards of Castle Frankenstein. Oh, well, this is the same sort of thing with Dracula's daughter and, and Castle Dracula now being across the street from the little village instead of, you know, the other side of the mountain. I kind of like this setup a little more, though, because it connects the tunnels between the two and all that. That was a cool... Yeah, I mean, I think that the script necessitated that kind of a change. It's a pretty obvious and glaring continuity change for those of us who've been watching these. Yeah, I gotta be honest with you, like, I, I really didn't bother me that bad because I didn't get a good sense of how far sort of the windmill lab was from Castle Frankenstein originally, or at least I couldn't remember. So for the idea of it to be maybe not that close, you know, maybe not on the property line, but still, like, look out the window and I can see, you know, where it used to be. So, like, I really didn't have that much trouble with it. It felt very, very different to me, but at the same time, it didn't really bother me either. It's just, you know, if you're if you're looking for it, I think it's it's pretty obvious. But then, uh, you know, so Wolf is examining what's left of his father's laboratory. This is, of course, meant to be the same lab that was destroyed at the end of Bride of Frankenstein. It doesn't really look the same at all either in design but for story purposes we can accept that it's the same spot there's a sulfur pit 
and a bunch of Kenneth Strickfadden's old lab equipment and um, Tesla coils and all that stuff is strewn all over the place. Yeah. I really love the uh, sulfur pit. I just the idea that maybe they opened up like a hole or a fissure in the ground and like this was beneath there and the whole time or something. And you know, as soon as you saw that, did you say to yourself, something's going in there at the end of the movie? Someone's fallen in the sulfur pit for sure. It's it's uh, Chekhov's sulfur pit, is it? <laughs> Instead of Chekhov's gun. <laughs> did you happen to catch? Now this is more of an Easter egg. But did you happen to catch in that first shot of the sulfur pit as Wolf looks down? You can see the prop dummy that is still laying in it from the climax of the movie. Oh no, no, I did not catch that. That's charming. I mean, it's it's not super obvious. I think if you're looking for it, you'll see it. But it's not something that will immediately jump out at you if you're not aware that it's already there. But yeah, take another look at that scene. It's totally just sitting in there in the sulfur pit. Now, this is the scene that brings two of our principal characters together, two of our most important characters together. As Frankenstein is inspecting the broken ruins of this laboratory, Igor is up on top in this, like, hole in the ceiling and drops a boulder from the ceiling, which sort of narrowly misses hitting Wolf. But in that scene, Wolf comes to know Igor as this guy who has been living in the castle in the in the meantime. He was somebody who allegedly robbed graves. He always makes sure to say, like, you know, they said I dug up graves and they hanged me. And you see his, his neck is broken and he's got sort of a partially exposed bone there. Like, his whole character design, I think, is incredible. Especially considering it's Bela Lugosi, because we're used to, like, sexy vampire Bela Lugosi. And here he's, like, completely masked by this scraggly beard, you know, gross hair, a hunch, gross neck. And in this scene, Igor kind of proves to Wolf that he could be made useful. You know, he knows this house better than Wolf does, and he starts to show him around these, like, hidden passages. This is where he takes Wolf down into what is essentially the crypt, the family crypt. This is such an interesting, like, dynamic between these two. It's such, he's such a cool character, Igor. Like, when they first meet, he's trying to kill him. He's trying to kill Wolf. He, he intends yeah. to drop yep. that boulder on his head. And then he was like, oh, no, I didn't no, you own the place. I thought you were trespassing, you know? And he's like, but you're a trespasser. And he's like, yes, I am. And then they sort of like get <laughs> to talking. And I definitely got like kind of like I said earlier, maybe a bit of an ape man vibe off of him for some reason. I don't know why I keep going to that when I see like these hairy dudes like in monster movies and stuff but i think planet of the apes and things um which won't be for like another like 30 years or so but i really love igor and his sort of conniving lying charming even ability to kind of play with wolf frankenstein and, and all that you know he gets his sympathies right out of the gate he's like look at me i'm a mess you know i can't even die you know i'm, I'm damned to live uh, as a dead man and everybody picks on me i've got nowhere to go he's like all right chap maybe i'll keep you around for a while and, and i think that a lot of that is lugosi i think you know a lesser actor may have just played this character maybe a little slow you know the pl kind of play him the way he looks lugosi was like okay he's gonna look one way but he's gonna subvert every expectation you have about him he's gonna be very smart he's gonna be very cunning and charming as you said you know i think that he is uh, much more nuanced because he was put into the hands of a very very capable actor yeah i think he's 
killing it in this role. He's knocking it out of the park. Like, it's the, one of those times where, like, I don't even see Dracula. Like, I don't feel that performance coming through at all. Like, this is a completely sort of unique presentation by Bella. I sort of forget that it's Bella, you know? Like, I know it is because I'm a huge fan, but I've seen Bella in other movies, you know, White Zombie and Black Cat, and he appears as Bella Lugosi here. Completely forget that it's him. He gets so lost behind all and, of that. Yeah, and again, smart making him kind of the smartest guy in the movie, right? Because like yep. you said, like it's another one of those situations where looks can be deceiving. People are going to write him off. Even later on, when they bring him in for questioning, they kind of treat him like an imbecile. And, you know, he plays that up a lot. But like, really, yes. yep. he's a mastermind. You know? Yeah, 100%. But in this scene, Wolf gets to visit his family tomb. He gets to see his uh, his grandfather's grave and then his father's grave, which had been vandalized. Somebody scratched Maker of Monsters into his coffin. And then, of course, we get to see the monster himself. The monster, now uh, unconscious, in a coma from what Igor described as an accident with lightning. Yeah, he gets restruck by lightning and sort of turned off this time, right? Right. They were allegedly hunting and as he was standing under a tree a, a bolt of lightning put him into this coma I, I love that explanation because lightning brings him to life and it's like you need to turn him off you strike him with lightning again if you can if you're lucky enough right <laughs> like, <laughs> it's too bad that never comes back into play because they're always trying to kill the monster by every other means and i'm wondering what if what if they just strike him with lightning well like even by the end of this i don't even believe he's dead because this whole conversation sort of about how it's immortal like he's just in a stasis yes. sleep like he's sick but like he's never gonna really die on his own like it's gonna take much more to take him out for good yeah. One of the things I love most about this scene is Igor trying to persuade Wolf to fix him, right? Because we're still not quite there yet with Wolf, but Igor, he, like, he makes the argument both he and the monster are creations of Henry Frankenstein. And there's that great moment where Wolf's like, do you mean to suggest that this thing is my brother? And, and Igor says, ah, but his mother was lightning. Yeah, brother from another mother, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It's true. Like, it's like the argument is like, you can't beat it, right? Like, if you're trying to convince right. Wolf to do this, it's just mounting up to the point of like, yeah, I should do this. It's my birthright. Igor really lays it on thick, just like, you know, Henry's letter to his son. Like, like everybody is just trying to convince him. They're trying to push him into this direction to, to continue the work and perfect it. I love what everyone knows at this point, because us as the audience knows the most, and we know what the inspector knows is that there have been a rash of murders, and Wolf is aware, like, he, it was mentioned that there were murders, like, going on and stuff, but now there's no question to the audience that it's been Igor and Frankenstein where the people like they're talking about like no one just just no one knows it's them that's what i put together by the end of this scene i was like oh like when he says hunting they were out and about like doing their killings and they had to kind of lay off now because frankenstein's monster is out of commission yes I definitely think that it's strongly implied that that's what's been going on at the time. If you continue that line of thought, Igor clearly just wants his killing machine back, which, you know, eventually we'll see that's proven correct in a, in, in a little while. But I love the moment where Wolf decides, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And he crosses out what's been scratched onto his father's coffin and changes it to say, maker of men. 
which to me really has some strong young Frankenstein vibes, you know, like I really get some young Frankenstein from that moment too. I think it's just because it's so on the nose, you know, he's scratching it with this big torch. But it's so dramatic, you could kind of see the madness start to come to the surface behind his eyes, right? Where he's like, I've kind of discovered a purpose, you know? I wasn't sure what I was looking for out here. I wasn't sure what I was going to find, but look at this. Like, maybe I do belong here. And then this the fervor in which he, like, uses that torch and everything, just, like, really, really selling it. Really good. Yeah. Now, the next scene, we go back to that sort of town council meeting room. Everyone is there, including um, Inspector Krogh. Like, they're all discussing the goings-on at Castle Franken. Einstein, right? And all they know is some some crates arrived, but everything's quiet. Too quiet. Yeah, they're like, it's too quiet. Crow's like, look, I have no evidence to suggest that anything funny is going on. And they're like, yeah, but we got to find out. You know, it's like these councilmen are like a sewing circle and they just got to be up to date on all the Frankenstein goss, you know? You know what they feel like? They feel like the censor board to me. They feel like the censors going like, what's going on with that Frankenstein movie? Like, what are they doing in there? Like, what kind of perversion is happening in those movies and everything? Like, we can't be having Frankensteins. So they make the decision that they're going to, like, get some spies to figure out what's happening. I love that. They're going to get some rats in there. <laughs> Real uh, depotted style. <laughs> yes. Igor being their man, their their chief guy. Inside. How funny is that? That is, like, total departed. We're going to take the guy responsible and make him the mole without realizing it, you know? it's like... <laughs> right, 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 right. That's the plan for the townspeople, to get some information, figure out what's happening. But as far as anyone can tell up to this point, everything's generally pretty quiet, and, and there's really no, no specific reason for alarm. But as we know, Wolf is now hard at work in his lab, trying to bring the monster back to life. He's, like, full tilt, back Back in his father's, you know, shoes. He's a great surrogate for the audience in this movie. It's in this sequence where he, like, pokes at his neck and he's like, look at these, like, electrodes on his neck. That must be where you hook him up. And that's definitely, like, what I thought as a kid when I saw Frankenstein's monster. He's going to drop the term superhuman, which I thought was crazy. That term had probably started flying around a bit, again, because of what was happening in Germany at the time, unfortunately. But, like, you know, Superman was probably on the scene in the comics. Yeah, so that was 1938 was Action Comics number one, and this is a year later. That was June of 38. So, you know, maybe they snuck that term into this movie at some point, but I I like what I'm hearing. Yeah, this scene really gets into really the nitty gritty of the science, quote unquote, of what this monster is. There's a lot of technical mumbo jumbo in here. This scene is when they're like, they x-ray him and he's like, oh, he's been shot several times. Like, that's part of his problem. And then they like look at his cells and his cells are very like unusual and like seem to maybe be Wolverine cells, right? Like healing themselves or something or self-replicating. Like he's definitely more than human. His diastolic is like three times that of a normal human being. There's all this science talk in this, I'll call it a montage. It's essentially a montage sequence. Basically, like you said, lays out this idea that the Frankenstein monster is in fact supernatural, super strong, like just could live forever. 
What's kind of crazy about that, though, is that he's saying it's better than a human, right? By saying he's superhuman, it, it, inc- it, it sort of, to me, denotes superiority, the supremacy over us in some way. Like, he's better if you're a superhuman. Yeah. And, like, I think, like, we mostly think of the creature as less than human because he was brought back from the dead and he doesn't function as well. But Frankenstein's son sees him as better than us, like evolution almost, which is a cool sort of right. viewpoint to have. And like he sees his father's accomplishment as being greater than that of what he set out to do. He didn't just conquer death, which was his goal, right? To take something dead and and restore life to it. He created a potentially immortal creature. Yeah, like if we could just apply that to ourselves now, then we're good to go, right? We'll We'll live forever. Right. And in his mind, he's thinking, well, we're going to turn this right around, you know, so like we're not going to be hated anymore. They're going to see all the good that can come of this work and everything's going to be great. Oh, but he doesn't know. I know. Well, the hubris, you know. <laughs> yes. This scene is sort of cut with an interrogation scene with Igor. He has been brought in to, to speak to the town council and relay information. And he doesn't really give them anything, right? He kind of explains that Wolf is back to work, at least in, in the lab, with all these different kinds of instruments and machines. And, and he's just a blacksmith. You know, he doesn't know what any of it does. Yeah, he's trying to throw him off the trail, off the scent. He's like, nothing's going on. And then he's like, kind of got this attitude of like, why would I tell you anyway? You are all the guys who had me hanged that one time. Yes, that is the other important detail in this scene. They're like, you know, you're not digging up any bodies or anything like that. And, you know, like, well, because we'll hang you for that. He's like, no, you can't hang me. You've already hanged me for that. And he's like, well, he's got us there. He's like, oh, just because he didn't die for good doesn't mean we get to hang him again. (laughs) Right. And even and even the, the dude in charge is like, look. He was pronounced dead by the the medical examiner. Everybody else he has pronounced dead over the past however many years has stayed dead. If Igor is alive again, it's the devil's work and we'll have no part of that. Which I love that. I love that whole logic, you know, like, no, we're not going to hang him twice for the same crime. Yeah, that's where like the humor is coming from is more of like this sort of like cultural detachment, maybe where it's like, wow, they are full on like they because like we said earlier, like it's not a superstition to them. They are dealing with it. And so like there's a dead man walking around town. Just let it let it be like we tried once. He came back to life like just good enough alone. The really important information we get from this is that it was eight men who decided to sentence Igor to death originally. And only two of them remain on this council. And I do think if if they don't say it explicitly, it's implied that the other six were found dead. And those are the murders that we keep hearing about. So I also love Igor saying they die dead. Igor die. I live. His performance of this scene is just so great. And then as he leaves, he just starts coughing on people like, sorry, I can't choke on bone in my neck. So I just love him like playing this whole group of people. Because we know, we just saw how sort of persuasive he can be. And now we're seeing like another one of his skills is like doing that, but like sort of in the opposite way. It's like not giving up the information he wants to. So now we go back to the lab where Wolf and Igor and Benson are all ready to jumpstart this monster. Oh, that's right. We brought Benson in. (laughs) Yes, which was a touchy subject for Igor, right? Like Igor didn't want anybody in town, nobody to know that, that this monster was still around. Yeah, can he keep his mouth shut, you know? Otherwise, I shut mouth for him. <laughs> but Frankenstein makes the case that Benson has been with his family for years. He's a man to be trusted. 
And so Igor has to, has to relent. It's Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. But he, he relents at least with the knowledge that if this works, Benson doesn't need to be an issue for very long. Mm. Right. So they fire up the machines and the experiment appears to start to work. Right. But uh, ultimately it fails. The, the monster shows some signs of life, then ultimately slips back into the coma. What I thought was also cool is about this is we get a little bit of Wolf figuring out like kind of where his father went wrong, right? Like he, he mentions two things here where he's like, my father was trying to channel super violet rays. But what he really channeled were cosmic rays. And I was like, damn, this is comic book language now. Like, that is the Hulk and stuff, right? Yeah. You know, and the Hulk was sort of born of Frankenstein to a degree as a bit of an influence there. So it's just wild how almost affirming this is and just like cool it is to hear all these sort of terms come to the surface in this movie now. And to mention cosmic anything in a horror movie these days, you definitely think Lovecraft and stuff and so like it was really driving those themes home too about this outsider comes to strange town that you know his family's from and starts meddling with supernatural craziness and creates a wild monster experience so loving it so then we have our sort of servant in the house one of them this is Fritz which we had sort of mentioned earlier in the show. There's, there's a character, Fritz, in here. He's, he's somebody who lives in the town, who works in the castle. And he's reached a breaking point. He can't work in the Frankenstein castle anymore. It's too stressful. But of course, Krogh solves that problem by paying him more money in exchange for information. Presumably, he gets some information from Fritz that gives him a reason to take a visit to the castle Frankenstein and kind of see what's going on firsthand. We have this great scene where Krog is having, I guess, breakfast or brunch with Elsa and we get more of her sort of like not feeling quite so comfortable in the house. Uh, but I like the chemistry between these two characters because we don't see them together too often in the, in the movie. Yeah, I like it too because it also sort of affirms Krog to be kind of more like uh, more of a gentleman right like yes. and that kind of thing like this just is like yeah he's a he's definitely the good guy here right and elsa gives up the fact that her husband has been spending a lot of time in the lab has shown signs of exhaustion high levels of stress she doesn't really know what he's doing but that it's it's taking its toll on him i think they also re-mentioned the sulfur mine or the sulfur pit or something like that too i think that's just to remind us again that that's, that's there. there. And then we get a little visit from Peter, right? The son of the son of Frankenstein with his little sort of like bedtime story that he saw a giant. Yeah. <laughs> and the inspector's like, could you say that again, son? <laughs> so when Peter lets slip that he saw a giant in his adventures out hunting, his parents send him to bed and his father, Wolf, follows him up to talk to him a little bit more about this giant he saw because that sounds quite familiar to him. <laughs> Of course, Peter, his description of this giant sounds exactly like the Frankenstein monster. The way he walks, the way he's dressed, and now suddenly Wolf has some serious cause for alarm because maybe this monster is, is alive now, right? And possibly a danger to his own child. So as he is rushing to his lab, Krog is still in the house. And Krog's like, hey, where are you going? And Frankenstein has to like make up some kind of excuse. From this point until the very end, he's pretty much trying to stonewall Krog 
at, at every turn, yeah. right? He doesn't want to let on that what he's doing, right? So he's in constant excuse mode. He's got to head back to his lab and get some notes. He runs back to the lab. Monster is gone. So now he's frantically searching through the lab, right? He's going through all these tunnels that we've learned exist. So as he is searching the lab, the monster crawls up from where we know the sulfur pit is up this you know there's like a ladder there and surprises wolf right with the with the hand on the shoulder and it's the first time wolf has seen this monster fully upright and alive lucid and it's a terrifying moment you know because at one point the monster goes to like almost like as if he's going to choke wolf right um I, I love this interaction between Karloff and rathbone we get our first what i feel like our first really good look at the monster because he's up and about and i think he looks great in this movie he doesn't yes. have quite like the damage he did in the last film he's healed up a little bit but i like his big furry coat or whatever he's wearing like i think that's pretty cool like I, I, if you're gonna have him wear something aside from just like a black blazer put him in something that's interesting it also sort of makes you think of him more of like an animal right because it's like animal skin or animal fur or something like that too i thought was interesting right i mean i'll be honest the first time i saw this this outfit like the big wooly sweater thing he's wearing i didn't love it as a look for the monster however logically speaking what would igor dress him in if not this yeah i mean like a burlap sack can you get one big enough it tracks logically. It's just like, it's just a weird thing to have him dressed in because I'm so used to like the suit, you know, like the ill-fitting suit. I think also maybe he might not be quite tall enough. Like he doesn't quite tower over the other actors in the movie because they're so tall as well, right? Like I feel like he might have needed a little more lift to be more imposing or to tower over at least the other guys in the lab because I was looking at the three of them sort of standing together and I was like, they're pretty shoulder to shoulder for the most part and, and Frankenstein's monsters even got the platforms on as well. But that was like a very minor sort of issue that I had that I'm sure isn't a big deal. Yeah, I mean, that's something that could have just been oversight and they didn't they didn't realize it. But I mean, would have been nice if the monster was taller. In some of these shots, he is significantly taller. It's just it's it's a continuity issue that I think that they, they just didn't always pay attention. Combination of angles and sort of the way things are, are shot at times just doesn't make him look overtly imposing, I suppose. But I, I love this man in the mirror moment. That's great. That's so great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the first time we've seen the monster see himself in this film. Like, it's almost like every time he sees his reflection, like in a pond, or he remembers, oh, right, I'm hideous. I'm this gross thing. And then by pulling Wolf into the mirror with him, it's just, it just underlines how disturbing he is as opposed to a normal human man yeah and i also saw that a bit as how similar they are to both sort of be from the same guy right like maybe he doesn't kill wolf because he can sense that he's a frankenstein or something right like just like maybe yeah, this yeah. sort of feeling that he has like oh this is kin or something yeah it's almost framed like a family portrait yeah you know it's almost like they're looking at a photo of themselves on the wall it's a mirror of course but but seeing them posed together in the mirror just it struck me as like a, a like a grotesque family photo. So now that the monster is upright and you know for all intents and purposes back to normal, Igor is not too keen on having him messed with anymore by Frankenstein. 
Frankenstein, of course, is like, no, what do you mean? Like, yes, he's up and, and, and he can move, and but he's not right up here in his brain, you know? Like, he's not totally well again. And, and Igor is like, he's good enough for me. That's it. You don't touch him anymore. Uh, that's always the way, right? He's not 100%. It doesn't matter. We need it now. We'll take him at 55% if we have to. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think it would behoove Igor to have a fully operational Frankenstein monster because he needs somebody to boss around. In this current state, he can wield authority over this giant monstrous figure. Once Karloff enters the film here, I really love his relationship with Lugosi, like the way that they play as like friends. Oh, they're best buds. Yeah. I almost wonder if the creature thinks of him in a way as he did the blind man from the second movie, you know, where it's like, it's you and me, man. Like, you know, I've got a friend. And I got to think he saw Igor as another sort of monstrous person who was kind of like him, you know, like somebody that normal society would, would not feel too good about, right? Yeah, an outcast, yeah. He must have seen Igor as a kindred spirit in that way. So now, essentially, Igor is the mastermind of all of this criminal activity, and the Frankenstein monster has become his weapon of choice. So I love that dynamic here. What I don't love is that this becomes the trend for the Frankenstein monster for the rest of time. This keeps happening? Yeah, they sort of keep recycling that idea, and he becomes a pawn in the plans of other characters. And I mean, that happens with the mummy, we'll discover, you know, like both characters kind of become very similar parallels. But I think this movie does illustrate that Karloff was right about, you know, it being time to hang it up. Possibly. Like, one thing this movie proves is, like, you could take the creature itself in another direction and it'll work. In the second movie, he started talking and thinking more and stuff like that. In this one, like, hey, let's power him down a little bit. And now he's, like, very obedient and is more of, like, you just sort of, like, aim him at something. He's more of a weapon or something like that. It would have been cool to see them try and take him someplace else, like maybe make him smart Hulk again. I'm glad he's that way in this movie because it feels sort of fresh. He's not 100%. He'll get back there maybe in the next movie. He'll be back to 100%. And who knows, maybe then he'll be like the criminal mask. That would have been cool. If, if like the creature becomes the way that Igor is in this one in the next movie, like a criminal mastermind who can't be, he's like a gangster film now. And he's like the boss because he can't be killed. To use another Hulk parallel, he like becomes Mr. Fix-It. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Yeah. So now Wolf is sort of blind to this idea that the monster is Igor's sort of like murderous pet. He doesn't really see that so much as, as he does the fact that the monster is now alive again. He's accomplished that feat. So while he's talking to Benson about like, all I got to do now is get Igor to listen to me because all it listens to is Igor. Igor decides to take his friend and continue his reign of terror inside the village of Frankenstein. And one of the councilmen that we met in a previous scene is one of the two remaining people responsible for uh, Igor's death sentence. So we get this great scene where he is on a horse-drawn carriage heading out of town and Igor has sent the monster to kill him. What I think is cool about this scene is that he doesn't just like grab the guy and choke the life out of him, but he arranges him under the horse-drawn carriage and then has that run him over to mask any signs that it might have been foul play. Like they they could sort of pass it off as, oh, he fell asleep at the wheel and 
and then fell forward and was run over by his own carriage. It's brilliant. And to top that off, Igor is sitting in the window of the Frankenstein castle playing this, I don't know what kind of instrument that is. It's a horn of some kind. I think it's a great example to throw in some diegetic music. So now Igor has this alibi. He's been out in the window playing music all night. People can testify to have seen him doing that. Meanwhile, the, the monster is carrying out his task of killing one of these councilmen. Yeah, I definitely love the sort of idea behind this kill. Because what always happens is as soon as the monster grabs you, like, uh, you, you have a heart attack and die of fright, basically. So you have to sort of cover it up somehow. And it's just really smart of the writer and I guess, you know, ultimately of the character to, like, put the guy, like, lay him underneath the horse-drawn carriage. I was like, well, that's pretty brutal. That's pretty rough. Uh, I'm kind of surprised, even though we don't get a clear shot of it, like, I'm surprised that idea got past the censors. And uh, I was wondering how Igor controlled the creature, and I kind of like that what I think is happening is it's like a snake charmer situation. Yeah! He's playing the horn, and it's making the creature do his thing and when he stops he stops doing his thing it's like this hypnotic snake charming situation which was very interesting yeah i'll be honest i was a little bit surprised that the monster had the intelligence to understand like the task to not just kill somebody but to make it look like something else i love that that is like the plan it's it's Brilliant. With that particular task done and accomplished, we cut back to Castle Frankenstein, where Krogh is back there visiting with the Frankensteins for dinner. And we learn in this scene that Benson has gone missing. And Frankenstein is back in, like, full excuse mode. You know, I I sent him to get some of my notes. Well, wouldn't he be back by now? Well, maybe they were confusing notes or confusing instructions and maybe like you know how he is and she's like she's like what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) he is like lying through his teeth like his wife is like something's up he's like nothing's up he cannot see that she is like in a pants like she is she needs to get out of there like she's scared out of her mind she wants the the boy to be out like they gotta get out of town you know and and he's just like relax baby like nothing's going i got it all under control i swear i swear i got it under control (laughs) yeah so by the end of this scene krog is called away to investigate another murder so this time you know it's the guy we just saw killed in the uh, the horse-drawn carriage so while he is away investigating that wolf immediately rushes to the laboratory where Igor is there and has a lot of explaining to do. He questions Igor about like where Benson went. Igor kind of plays dumb. He has no idea, but I think we have our suspicions that Benson is probably no longer breathing because this monster is now... Oh, right. He's like, he wanted to get out of here, so he left or something. Like, he says something to the effect of, like, he couldn't take it anymore, so I told him to leave. And so he did, without saying goodbye to you, the man he served his entire life. Yeah, it's just like half-baked excuses upon half-baked excuses here or explanations. It's all it takes, really, to sort of, like, placate Frankenstein. You know, he's in such denial, you know, that he just needs, like, half an answer and and he's good. You know, he's good to get through the next couple minutes. (laughs) But he he does ask Igor in this scene, like, what is down that ladder by the sulfur pit? And Igor says, it's just a cave. 
just a cave. You know, like, where's the cave lead to? It's just a cave. But we know that that, that is, you know, his route. That's where his secret tunnels are in, in, in through the castle and into the town. Yeah, it was so weird to learn that him and the creature would sleep there in the winter because it was warm and stuff. And it's like, all right. So, yeah, there's no doubt that's where the secret entrances are to the house because, you know, it's the only thing we haven't seen yet, too. It's like they've got to be in the sulfur cave. Right. So then the following scene, we get two things happening at once. Frankenstein and his and Elsa are getting ready for bed and she still is just not convinced there's not something wrong with Benson, you know. And, and Frankenstein suggests, well, maybe, you know, I've, you know, I've been working him very hard lately. Maybe he just went out and got drunk. Well, Benson doesn't drink. Well, maybe he does and we don't know it, you know, like maybe he only drinks sometimes. So he's just continuing this web of lies to his wife. Meanwhile, Igor is setting up his next kill. It is, again, one of the other members of that council who also happens to own a local apothecary. And so we see the monster sneak into that apothecary after hours and strangle this particular man. And this is one of my favorite kills. I actually really like this one stylistically. It feels the most like Caligari like or, or, or other expressionist films at the time where we don't see it happen. We see the silhouette of it and it feels very like very much like a silent film, like Nosferatu or something else like that. This time it's a pretty simple kill. It's just a straight shot right to the back of the head and uh, and he's done. Now by this point, by the next day, I think the villagers have caught wind that two more people have died and they assemble the mob who are gonna go like essentially hang out outside Castle Frankenstein in a, like a siege situation. You know, they want blood and they're not gonna stop until this new Frankenstein is made to a tone for all this shit that's been going on in their town it does kind of turn into like an assault on precinct 13 sort of ending here right <laughs> yeah to, to the point where krog shows up and is like you can't leave why can't i leave well because there's a giant mob outside who's going to kill you if you and we're trapped inside with with monsters you know like <laughs> like it's right. like that movie too where there's good guys there's cops and robbers inside of this precinct and then there's like the mob outside so now things get like I mean, this is like where the the film really gets tense right like mm -hmm. like every everything that happens from here until the end i think for like the remaining 20 minutes or maybe the last half hour it's just frankenstein and krog playing this game of information Krogh knows for sure something's up. He doesn't really know that it's Frankenstein, but he has his suspicions. I mean, who else would it be? He also suspects Igor, certainly. But Frankenstein refuses to admit that he's been doing anything untoward, right? Like, he just is not going to give up any information. At this point, Frankenstein is suspect number one, if only because Igor has this somewhat or seemingly airtight alibi, right? Like, everyone has seen him at the moments these men were murdered. But Krog suspects it might be Igor indirectly. Like, you know, I think he has his suspicions that this creature still is alive and exists and is being used by Igor, right? Like, he, I think he, he even says it as much at one point, that it could still be Igor. But I need you to tell me what the hell is going on, and, and Wolf just doesn't want to give it up. So then he gets very defensive. This is where, where Basil Rathbone is really amping up his performance, right? This is where he's he's swinging for the fences, like suddenly gets very defensive. Like, I'm not allowed to leave my house. I'm a prisoner in my own home. You know, like st starts throwing this like temper tantrum when Krog has said absolutely nothing about arresting him. You know, yeah, like he's yeah. not there to arrest him. He's there to protect him. But he's like, well, he's just going to lock me up. You know, I'm a prisoner, my own home. 
I love this moment. Like this to me feels so well directed and communicated because it's definitely like the actions of a man who totally has something to hide. Yes. And is like really scared of kind of getting caught, but then like also doesn't realize he's not really being prodded for that information, right? Yes. <laughs> so yes. it's like, what are you talking about? I wasn't there on the third. He's like, I didn't say anything about you being there on the third. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like that kind of scene where it's like, it was like, oh, of course I have no idea what's going on with the monster that killed someone last night. It was like, I didn't say he killed anybody last night. And it's like, oh, damn it i mean that's that's not what he's saying but like that is sort of the gist of the sequence and like i just love the way wolf is sort of coming across here is like his his manic tensions are like really peaking definitely and i think this is where basil rathbone really again this is where his performance just gets really amazing there's the nuances from with the contrast of of, of the beginning of the film where he's kind of this excited well-intentioned guy to now he's just in total defensive manic crazy mode i love this performance and so while he's basically on lockdown, Krogh is going to get back to sort of investigating, but from within the Frankenstein house. And then he wants to know a little more about this giant that little Peter saw, right? And this is where we discover that the giant gave Peter this pocket watch. And upon further inspection, Krogh realizes that it's Benson's pocket watch. Hmm. Okay, so now we have another clue. Probably not Frankenstein murdered his own butler, but this monster sounds an awful lot like the creature that his father created, you know, years ago. Let's follow that thread and see where it goes. Yeah, very cool. I like how Jason's story sort of intersects again. And, you know, everything that's sort of been going on with him is still important and becomes like integral to the actual plot and stuff. And later, you know, he's even going to be taken by the creature and stuff. So it's just really cool how they've managed to like involve everybody by the end of the movie and like tidy up everybody's sort of little plots together. And now we got Wolf and Elsa having their moment, and he's basically behaving in the same way, you know, like announcing his innocence, but she's not saying he's guilty. Although she does say that, you know, if, if she were uh, Inspector Krogh, he would seem guilty to her. And like she's on his side, but also really like, dude, you're acting like an insane person right now, which I kind of love. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you did it, but if you did it, this is like how you'd probably be behaving. If you, you You're acting like you did it. So, like, come on. <laughs> she even comes out and says the obvious. The people out there who want to kill you probably think that you, like your father, created this monster. She basically says what the reality is. And I think in that moment, he like, there's this great little pause where he knows, like, that's what's happened. And he doesn't have a lie quick enough. But so then he just starts spiraling out of control for the rest of the scene and just trying to reassure her that everything's okay, right? But I love this scene between the two of them because this is where I think she gets the best material to work with. She's been kind of like glum the whole movie, but now she's in like defensive spouse mode, you know, wants to protect her husband from everything that's going on. But at the same time, you know, she's got to figure it out too. She's in the dark about a lot of it. I don't know. I think she gets to play a lot more stuff in this scene. Yeah, she comes back more towards the end of the film. She feels more like sort of the voice of reason, like his conscience, that kind of that kind of thing. Like maybe more of like what we would do, right? Like you and I or something. Yeah, if anybody's going to get through to, to Wolf in this sequence, it's her. Yeah, she's like, it's not basically like, it's not too late. Just, you know, stop now, like come clean. Like we could still fix this. Like let's figure it out before it gets any worse because it is going to get worse um, because he is not gonna talk to her. <laughs> Krogh gets called away because of another murder so he has to leave 
And with that time that Wolf now has where he can, you know, go off and tend to the things that really need to be tended to here, he heads straight back to his lab and goes down the ladder in, like towards like the, the sulfur pit into those caves that were talked about before. And he fully intends to murder this creature to the point where he almost does it. He grabs this big rock and almost brings it down on the sleeping monster in this cave. Which, you know, that's not going to do it. Well, it could. I think that rock is just going to split in half over that creature's head. Like, like that is not going to do it. Um, you got to roll this monster into the sulfur pits. Possibly, but I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the, the monster is invulnerable to a big boulder like that. You know, I, I bought it in the moment that it was going to do the job. I, I saw it as sort of like this feeble gesture of, man, you just ah. don't, you don't know what you're dealing with. Like, you think a rock is going to take care of this creature? Like, nah, man. If it wasn't going to do the job, I don't know that Igor would have intervened the way he did. Maybe he would have. But either way, we don't really know if the boulder would have done the job or not because, again, Igor intervenes. And this is where Igor becomes, like, full maniacal villain, right? All of his cards are on the table. Oh, I love it. Oh my god, this this scene is so good. This is like a full-on like James Bond reveal kind of feeling to me, you know? When he's like, yeah, I made the monster kill all eight men who hanged me at my trial. And like, it was me, and I used the monster, and there was an actual reason. There was cause, there was like motive. Like, I had it all. It's like, I pulled it off. I was like, damn, he, he won. That's wild. He has his moment in the sun. He does. He doesn't get so busy monologuing that he, like, dies in that scene. Which, which so many villains, you know, they, they, once they get going, they're blind to what's about to happen to them. But no, instead, Krogh returns, and Frankenstein is back in his, like, study, like his library, playing darts. Krogh is starting to put the pieces together. I think at this point, for sure, he knows that it's at least not Frankenstein responsible for the murders, but that the monster is still alive, or is, you know, is, is still the problem. And it could potentially be Igor, but throughout this whole scene, Frankenstein is just dodging questions left and right, even challenging Krogh to a game of darts, which, again, big laugh from me. The second when Krog takes his bunch of darts and just sticks them into his false prosthetic arm. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. <laughs> I just love that so much. So Basil Rathbone is basically playing the same notes where he's wildly uh, deflecting any accusations and coming up with these excuses. But you start to get the sense in this scene, I think when he discovers that Benson was murdered, he starts to slow down a bit and his, like you can see the glassiness in his eyes and the desperation in his voice starts to come through. And I don't know, man, I just, I, I love that bit. The jig is up and he knows it, but he's so unwilling to just say what's been going on, you know? When does he finally crack to the point where he's like, don't blame me, it was Igor. Igor did it. Blame Igor. It's it's his fault. Like, he won't still admit that the creature is walking around, but he is like, Igor's your guy. Like, stop bothering me. Yeah. But this whole scene, I will say that, that Krogh is still on Frankenstein's side. Yes. Which is unbelievable. I feel like any other character in his position would, you know, like, that's it. You're under arrest. Yeah, it's wild. He wants actual justice, you know, like, by the book. Yeah, oh yeah. He's not interested in, like, mob justice here. So, Krogh begins to investigate and, like, discovers the secret hidden passages within the home. I think that he, he's, he's in Peter's room when he discovers that one. And while he's doing that, Frankenstein heads back to the lab with a pistol, and he's going to put an end to Igor once and for all, right? 
You know, he, he might come back from a broken neck, but he's not going to come back from a belly full of lead. And they have this great fight. Frankenstein has the pistol. Igor has this giant mallet. They have a pretty quick but pretty cool little physical altercation there. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see a gun get flashed at the end of this movie. Yes. You know, I thought for yeah. sure it would be something a little more medieval, like a crossbow or, or an axe or, or something like that. Well, no, we're, we're in modern days now. Exactly. Or, or, or at least Wolf is from modern time. So yeah, he's armed with a gun and dispenses justice in that way. While Krog is investigating this hidden passageway in Peter's room, he discovers Benson's body. We cut back to the lab. The monster has climbed up from the sulfur pit, discovers Igor's dead body on the floor. His only friend is now killed, and he lets out this incredible scream. Amazing. It's the only real vocal work that Karloff does in this whole movie, and I'm not entirely sure that it's him. It might be him. It, it could be him, but I know that that scream has been used again in other films. Oh, it's almost like the Wilhelm scream now, where it's like the uh, Karloff scream or something, and it's uh, recycled over and over. That's pretty cool. The rest of this movie is, like, incredible. Like, it ends in such a bang that, like, I was on the edge of my seat ever at the, I mean I love the whole movie but once Igor shot I'm like whoa okay like we're gonna wrap this up in a lot of action oh yeah it ends very abruptly the way a lot of these movies do like ultimately it, it kind of is like okay we're done and then we have like a little short scene the movies are it movies oh, over oh yeah it's it's definitely like phew it's a good thing that's over with credits like it's still that but everything up to that is very climactic we get an intense i would say like 20 to 25 minutes if not a half hour at the end of this movie once the mob starts to form and starts to you know uh, lay siege to the castle everything just feels very immediate and and tense and like every interaction things are about to unravel so while the, the monster is is in the lab discovering his friend's dead body he starts to go nuts destroying the lab Krogh confronts Frankenstein with Benson's pocket watch and makes one last ditch attempt to get the truth out of Frankenstein and even says I will be with you even if you confess but if you don't I you know I'll feed you to the villagers out there like the Romans fed the Christians to the lions <laughs> yeah every man's got his breaking point <laughs> he's reached yeah he's reached that point where he's like okay look I've been on your side this entire time I'm pretty sure it was you or at least I suspect it was you you're hiding something from me but if you don't come clean, there's not going to be anything I can do to save you. Like, if say something and we can help. If not, then, like, you're, you might, you're probably going to die. <laughs> there's just no two ways about it. It's out of control. It's out of your hands, man. Yeah, it's like a help me help you sort of situation. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. It's like, I don't want to have to feed you to that angry mob outside, right? <laughs> so, you know, let's wrap this up. In this next sequence, we see the, um, the monster is destroying the laboratory, throwing everything into the sulfur pit. He stops once when he picks up uh, like, a, like a fairy tale comic book, right? Yeah, it was the book the little boy gave him upon their yes. first meeting. Yeah. Yes. And he sort of crumples that up. It like gives him the idea to go kidnap the little boy. Yes. 
Exactly right. And so he immediately stampedes through the, the hidden passageways of the home to kidnap Peter. Which looks so amazing. I just love the look of this whole movie. Like we even get that whole new set piece at the end with the with the like the hallways and the underground caves or whatever thing and stuff and like, you know, they do it justice, right? Like parts of it look like an actual cool looking crazy cave and stuff. So Yeah, and I love I love how cold that one moment is. So so the monster is creeping in through that same trap door that we saw Igor peek through earlier, like at the, towards the beginning of the movie. And Amelia, his nanny, is sitting outside doing her knitting. And when she goes in to check on him, she is frightened by the monster. And like in the same shot, like she falls to the floor and he just shuts the bedroom door. It's like one of the most chilling moments in this whole movie. Again, man, that, that kind of reminded me of that kill in Chainsaw when Leatherface just like slams that door. <laughs> Ever since you said that, now it's all I see. <laughs> so now, of course, this plot element that remains from the original script, the, the, the monster takes Frankenstein's son into the lab and is uh, about to fling him into the sulfur pit when he gets another idea. He's going to take him up top. They all crawl up the ladder. Peter even helps him up. There's this really sweet moment where they're crawling up the ladder. Peter's like, here, here we are. I'll help you. The whole thing is he thinks they're on like an adventure. He's like, oh yeah, my buddy. You know, he doesn't have any clue that this is malevolent at any to any degree. Definitely. So Krogh, at some point, like I don't know, this is one of those moments that I find a little bit confusing. Krogh and Frankenstein separate in their pursuit to get to the laboratory. Frankenstein approaches the lab from outside the way he would normally get in, but the monster has barricaded the door. Krogh comes up. Up through the secret passageways, like through the bedroom and the secret secret passageways, and climbs up the ladder from the sulfur pit. Now, this is a great moment here. Crow coming face to face with the monster that ripped his arm off as a child, again rips that same arm off, but this time it's a prosthetic arm. Amazing imagery of seeing the creature rip this dude's arm off. Right? Because like in the moment, it didn't register that his arm was fake, right? I was like, oh, right. They got away with showing the creature rip an arm off of somebody. That was brilliant. I loved it. And then the, like, the repeated trauma that this guy just went through of having the same thing happen to him again like 40 years later or whatever. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that the only reason they got away with ripping a guy's arm off in this movie and got it like, you know, past the censors is that it was established as a prosthetic arm. Like, there's no way we would have seen the monster actually rip off an arm. But the effect is, is the same, yes. whether it's a prosthetic or a real arm. Like, the visual of him ripping an arm off is incredible. And the impact is even worse because it's happened to the character twice. There's something sort of more twisted and, like, weird and worse about it to know that like the, the he lost the creature again the only thing i've been waiting my whole life to face off again ah oh, damn it i lost like, <laughs> and what's even more chilling is that if i'm not mistaken the monster like has his foot on the child at this point and is like keeping the kid down on the ground while he's like lunging at people he's got peter in the left arm and then he pulls off Krogh's arm with his right hand. Oh, he does kind of have Peter under his foot. Yep, totally does. And in this moment, we get maybe the best stunt in the whole movie. Basil Rathbone as Wolf von Frankenstein swings into action, like very much like, a, like Robin Hood would have done. Yeah. And swings across the lab, kicks the monster into the sulfur pit, and we get another scream, which I believe is the same scream we heard before, but with some post-production effects put on it. Like, what a finish, right? 
Oh, amazing. Amazing. Like that is to that total swashbuckling, like pirate move that he pulled out from it, from like a previous movie that he was definitely in. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you good at? Well, I could swing on a rope. Let's do that in this yeah. movie. You know? I mean, it was, it was most definitely a stunt double, but audiences would have been familiar with him. as So I think that would have been a great like stand up and cheer moment for people seeing that live in the theater. What an awesome sort of climactic image of the monster taking a header into the... Uh, <laughs> the bubbling and hot sulfur pit. And uh, Dan, you know, I wasn't the only one that brought up this connection. I believe that your girlfriend also thought the same thing. Why don't why don't you uh, say what I'm talking about here? What did this moment remind us of? There have been multiple mentions of comparing this final moment of the, the, the monster sinking into a flaming uh, sulfur pit to one of the final images from T2 Judgment Day, yep. where the Terminator lowers himself down into that, was it like a furnace? So like, yeah, like the, the lava magma at like the foundry. What What's crazy is like, so just the imagery of, of like the creature flapping around in this stuff and melting is very much like kind of the T-1000's death, okay? But like, it's, yep. it's, it is a little kind of like, gives me a little bit of chills to, to also make it think of like Arnold's death in that movie because he is such a Frankenstein, right? Like the Terminator creature itself is so much based on like the Frankenstein monster. It's, you know, look at the bulk, the side, like the silhouette is almost identical, you know, between like right. a Terminator with his flesh on and, a, and the Frankenstein. So like that parallel was awesome to make. Like even if it wasn't in James Cameron's mind at the time, like, you know, you look at the two scenes and like, yeah, they're parallels. Oh, absolutely. The only thing I wish, and you know, I think it's because, or at least in part, because maybe didn't know at the time that Karloff was going to be done playing the monster at this point, but because this is kind of his last hurrah as the Frankenstein monster, I would have loved if that moment had given him more of, a, of an emotional beat, because those of us who have followed this character over three films, we've empathized with him. We've felt for him, especially in Bride of Frankenstein. We've even wept with him there, you know? And in this movie, he's sort of carelessly thrown into a sulfur pit and like, that's his end. And I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly spectacular finish, but when you when I look at it and, and compare it to the end of Terminator 2, I almost wish that like, I mean, I'm not asking for a thumbs up moment, of course. You know, I wish that they had had the foresight to give him that moment. But of course, you know, I think they expected to just throw enough money at him, he'd come back. And of course, that wasn't the case. So that's the only thing I would change is to, to not just throw away this character like that, give him a little more send off, emotional send off. But aside from that, I think it's a hell of a finish. Yeah, yeah. I was sort of thinking the exact same thing, whereas, like, I wish almost at the end that the monster did something to save the little boy and end up having to fall into the sulfur pit, right? Like, in the last moment. Or that, yeah. Right? Sort of, like, do a good deed. And that would sort of feel a little more T2 when he falls down and because he's not sort of suffering or, like, flailing about. He would sort of more go more solemnly into the deep, into the deep. Okay. Right. And I'm not saying yeah. he's waving goodbye or anything, but he's just sort of like <laughs> sinking. The other thing I think I would have done at the very end of this movie is have his hand come up out of the sulfur pit, you know, just that classic hand coming out of the grave imagery, but make it oh, just yeah. end on the hand coming up out of the sulfur pit, the end question mark. That would have been, that would have been great. I could see that being a solid ending as well. You know, I, th I just think movies weren't really made like that yet. 
No, like I'm still surprised that we're getting sequels and part threes and, and franchises um, in the 30s. You know, it seems like something that was just built into movies, like and maybe it was something that they picked up from literature. OK, like there's definitely, you know, series of books and stuff like that and everything. So like maybe when it came to making movies, they're like, yeah, it just stands to reasons that like episodes or, or single films are like a single novel. And like we can do 15 Sherlock Holmes movies because there's 15 books or whatever you know we could do these Charlie Chan series we could do characters like that in the medium and stuff and so like that's cool for me to kind of realize that a little better right is that how advanced their sort of way of thinking about this medium was even sort of like way back in in the beginning days yeah and I think this is especially true of, of horror as a genre they I don't think they were thinking that far ahead that we're gonna make five Frankenstein movies you know like they're they're just like hey people like this we're just gonna make another one and they just treat each installment as the potential last entry in the franchise so like if, if Frankenstein were were to end here, this is a solid ending, but fortunately, it was a very successful film, and we got another one. And then, you know, then of course, it becomes like a shared universe once we get the the monster mashups and whatnot. But yeah, I, don't, I just don't think they were thinking that far ahead that they would make another Frankenstein after this. It was just like, we need the money. Let's make this last Frankenstein movie. Oh shit, it's really popular. Okay, let's make another one. You know, like they just didn't have the foresight. Looking at it through a modern lens, these these various beats and moments and, and alternate ways to end would be great. It's just, you know, they just weren't making them like that then. So the final scene here is, it's a little baffling to me. I want to know what you think. <laughs> Wolf Frankenstein is like the hero of the town. A scene ago, the whole village wanted to burn his whole house down with him and his family in it. And now he's destroyed the monster for good, uh, or he and Krog have destroyed the monster for good. It's like they've forgotten about the handful of murders that have just recently happened, like the previous day. But anyway, they're psyched to see him and, and send him off. He has decided to sort of relinquish the entire Frankenstein estate to the town itself. And he gets back on the train and heads back to America, presumably. That's why they're psyched to see him, because he basically <laughs> gets over there and he's like, all right, here's the deed to the town. I'm out of here. Peace. Never going to see you again. I'm never coming back. I hated it. <laughs> you know, he's like, this was a mistake. He's like, we're never coming back. And uh, please, change the name to whatever you would like and it is a very much like bye and then cut the credits <laughs> oh yeah it's so abrupt but i love it it's so charming like i almost wish it ended on on, on a freeze frame or something like i just <laughs> i just love the abrupt like we're out of here we're packing up we're gonna split like before you guys like change your mind and throw us in a dungeon or something like like we you're supposed to be oh man well uh, i think that's a good place to wrap up is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish no, I think uh, we went pretty in-depth on this one. It's just, I was, uh, yeah, I was just really engaged into this one. I mean, partially because of all that, like, young Frankenstein uh, connection stuff. Like, that definitely helped me sort of get in, like, start looking for more stuff in the movie. But, like, once I did that, man, this movie takes on a life of its own. Like, I really enjoyed it. It was a big surprise. There's lots of great stuff in here. And, yeah, it was a good one. I think if I were to separate The Bride of Frankenstein from the other sequels overall i'm gonna i'm gonna include like all of the uh universal monster films here because I've, I've seen all of them I, I think that excluding the bride of frankenstein I, just because that stands apart from in, in, like in just about every way son of frankenstein might be the best sequel 
of all of them. All right. So you're saying it's all downhill from here. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> For yeah, the sequels, just... at least. <laughs> oh, no. I'm joking. I'm kind of joking. <laughs> there, there's plenty of great stuff, but I think that in terms of, you know, how much the sequels from here on out will play it cheap, the scripts will not be the most inventive. We're really mostly going to be watching for the characters and for some of the incredible performances that are in there. But like, as I established earlier in this episode, like Universal was not all that interested in hiring uh, amazing filmmakers and craftsmen to helm their horror projects anymore because they just couldn't afford these like extended shooting schedules and and, and sinking all this money into these projects because it just wasn't worth it to them. They wanted to keep it cheap, crank everything out uh, on time, and then make a boatload of money, which, you know, that's their prerogative. Yeah, people still think like that. Yeah, well, yeah, 100%. But like this, this is the last time... Aside from the the handful of like like the Wolfman and Creature from Black Lagoon, where a sequel feels right in line with mm. the other films in its franchise, I gotcha. I mean, I think as much as I like Dracula's Daughter, I do think it falls short of that a little bit, but is saved by a lot of the performances there. You know, I think this Son of Frankenstein very much feels wholly in line with everything else so far. Yeah, I feel like if. Dracula's daughter looked like this movie, then it would be right up there. You know, like that's the only thing right. for me that it's really missing is like the Maison scene a hundred percent isn't right there. But other than that, yeah. And this one brings that back like in like tenfold. Um yes. which I think really helps it along. Yes. Uh, with that, I think it's time for us to get out of here before uh an angry mob arrives and uh <laughs> burns us all alive but we're going to return on friday july 30th to discuss 1940s the invisible man returns starring the fabulous vincent price in his first horror role wow no kidding oh i can't wait i love vincent price <laughs> <laughs> there's the impression i was waiting for yeah, The Invisible Man Returns is a lot of fun, and um, I love the fact that it's like the first time Vincent Price was given a horror role, because at this time, you know, he was off doing all kinds of things. You know, I'll probably repeat this next next month, but I first saw Vincent Price in an episode of The Brady Bunch when they went to Hawaii, yeah. and he scared the hell out of me ever since, so... <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at the Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at the Monsters That Made Us at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. And Mike, where can listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter as well as at the underscore Mikester, and you could listen to all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, and uh, thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. A five-star rating and review will help more people discover the show. Uh, if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter as well, you can do so at patreon.com slash themonsterstatmadeup. And our t-shirts on TeePublic. We have two t-shirts currently available. We hopefully will have uh, another design on the way. But you can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just go on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs>